Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mukigana Harrington, joined by my north, by northeast, by Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you today? I'm doing great, Mookie. Uh, there was some snow. Uh, after all the snow melted. The snow melted the other day here in western New York. And I thought we were going to get some relief. But then, about 10.30 last night, I went outside and I took the garbage out. And there were like five brand new inches of snow covering everything. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's a lot. That's what, one of the reasons I, I... When I moved to Minnesota, it is cold. It has been negative uh, 10 for a lot of last week. Yeah. Consistently. Like all day. Which is very cold, um, but we rarely get more than you know an inch or two inches of snow, uh, just because it gets so cold that it stops snowing. And so we did get also get snow this week, and we also got a melt. It got up to like forty, and then it shut down to negative ten again. So I, as usual, blame the Canadians yeah. uh, for their wind patterns. And whatever we get, you usually get like two days later, but then with lake effect on top. So right. it has been a, a heck of a week. I, I'm recovering from the plague cough of death. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife had bronchitis. I probably had uh, that plus everything else under the sun. So my birthday was a very exciting sitting at home and watching Netflix and um, been watching a lot of speed runs on awesome games done quick. Uh, but that's about it. So uh, did you have a good week? I did some writing this week. I actually published like I think two articles or something like that. For uh, I did one on the business of New Japan's Wrestle Kingdom 12, looking at uh, NGPW World subscribers and the attendance, and then I did another sort of a column talking about 
Jericho and Omega saying, I think they deserve more credit for the New Japan World subscriber increase. And uh, I think Okada and Naito deserve more credit for the attendance. Maybe we'll get to that later on. Yeah, and then we also uh, have been dealing with WWE Mania in Las Vegas where all the the CES has been going on. And so there's been lots and lots and lots of interviews of WWE management. And I think the real question everything. is how come we're not reporting live from Las Vegas right now? Maybe we are. How come we're not Maybe. deployed out there? You know, I, I think it's really important for our listeners to know that we are not conflicted by the the glitz and glamour of Nevada that is going to influence our reporting here. And so we give it only straight from the source from Minnesota and New York. That's right. If, if W wanted more biased coverage, what they should do is pay for our travel expenses out in Las Vegas and we would cover them. Fly down on Vince's private jet. That's right. Get us in the corporate jet and we'll have our pre-show meeting on the plane and then we'll land and we'll go to the CES conference and whatever, wherever all these uh, conventions are with all the rich and, and technological people all the tech, technophiliacs, and we'll uh, report on them and give them the starry-eyed coverage that they love so much. And it, it's always this time of year because uh, it was my birthday. I remember that like WWE had one of their big press conferences, uh, their like, CES, their like, La- Las Vegas WWE Network launch video. And I remember sitting in my basement drinking whiskey and, and reporting, like live tweeting <laughs> and taking it. And it's 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 one of those things where in the future, you know, when the biography of of Mukigana is written, uh, one wonders whether or not this will be seen as a warning sign. Yes. But uh, was, we have was a Vince lot of with you drinking the whiskey. That's the question. <laughs> Vin, you know, we don't ever hear very much about Vince's preferred drinking tastes. I don't know whether he's a beer guy, a whiskey guy, a scotch guy, a wine guy. Well, you we always talk we, about him drinking scotch by the fireplace. So I, I, just I do. But we, I don't think I know what Vince drinks because we, we hear the, the the steak ketchup stories. We hear that. But I don't know if we've ever heard very much about what it is that Vince likes to drink. Uh, you know, obviously at the WrestleMania after party every year, they talk about, you know, Vince hanging out and and uh, partying it up and, and the famous doomsday device say, on the dance floor and all right. that stuff. We know about him but, taking a doomsday device somewhere. Was that like yeah. a strip club or something? Something like that. So we'll have to find out what it is that is uh, Vince's drink of choice. I would guess it's a protein shake made of uh, pure masculinity. He likes the energy drinks, I've heard. The uh, the Alpha Entertainment energy drink. Maybe that's all that it's going to turn out to be. Is Alpha Entertainment is just going to be a, a giant monster brand. It's going to be Jolt version 2. That's right. Al- Alpha would be a good brand because that's like what all those brands are, right? They're like, they're like masculinity ex- incarnate. I, I remember like joking to a friend about like there's monster and I'm about to give a plug to every one of them, but there's monster and there's amp. And then like for a short time there was uppercut and, uh, alpha well, would be, would be great as well. Can't you imagine a drink called vascularity? Vascularity. <laughs> I think, I think we've coined ourselves a new sponsor here is that, uh, we're just going to plug vascularity by alpha entertainment, the new energy drink available from vince mcmahon until it actually becomes a thing there you go maybe maybe that will be our our new our new patron uh support thing is you get a can of vascularity whether or not you want it there you go we've got to diversify into other other products we've got to put we can't just put the same product in in the across all three pillars we've got to put different content in each pillar 
literally a different content in each can, in each ear, yeah. each mouth hole. Each hole of the body should be filled by a different WrestleNomics. Your ears, your mouth, your nose. So we'll have to add uh, WrestleNomics aftershave. Mm-hmm. Smells like numbers. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, these are good good ideas. Mm-hmm. These are all very good ideas. I can all tell. inspired by the, uh, the wisdom and vision of World Wrestling Entertainment's various executives. Yeah, so they've been everywhere this week. Um, it's been a lot of talk about the future of WWE stock, and we're, we're hearing it from all corners of the world. So whether you're, you know, a Bloomberg trying to report on the stock, or whether you're Guggenheim putting a new price target out there, or whether you're Engadget, or uh, a Citigroup, or we got Needham coming up here on a conference on the 18th that George Berrios is going to appear at. It's just thing after thing after thing after thing when it comes to WWE coverage about how the stock is getting hotter and about the limitless opportunity right now. And this week's Wrestling Observer speaks a lot about um, WWE and Fox. I think some of this is synthesized possibly from coverage that's coming out of the Sports Business Journal. Um, but it, it's interesting kind of take on what is a new player in this mix here. We talk a lot about NBCU being an opportunity, but now this Fox discussion, which is something we had touched on a few weeks ago when I talked about the Disney Fox deal and kind of some of the ramifications in the future that could be coming and also from the Citigroup uh, analysis on WWE. But uh, what is what is the Observer saying about WWE and Fox? Uh, it basically said that if Fox doesn't renew its deal with UFC, which we've heard, we've heard right that Fox has made UFC an offer. Can you correct me here if I'm wrong? About two hundred million, right? Is that correct? Well, yeah, I think what it is is that we we think Fox is is throwing around a number that they don't want to go above two hundred million right now for what they're offering. UFC, of course, had been throwing out to investors and to. Uh, you know, media analysts, this idea that they could get 300 million or 400 million without a problem on renewals, which was part of the reason they got that $4 billion valuation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously if Fox, which is the incumbent, is only giving you 200 million, that is setting a floor that UFC doesn't want to kind of dance on right now. Yeah. So if Fox ends up not renewing UFC and UFC goes elsewhere, the speculation is, well, maybe Fox will look to replace UFC with WWE. And, and there's speculation that even if they do retain UFC, then they still may go after Fox. And they're cash rich is what a lot of people are pointing out here is that in, in the sale of all those regional sports networks to Disney, that's giving a lot of opportunity for Fox. But they still have their big Fox channel. They have their FS1. They have their FS2. And if you recall the whole transition with FS1 and FS2, with you, I think it was the Speed Network that they they transformed over um, and some other things. It, it's really important to them that they keep these as viable options. And unlike something like the USA Network, they really don't have a lot of identity outside of the UFC programming that's been put on top of them at this point. And so they really do need to make sure that they have eyeballs that get glued to their station by having some kind of brand name footage that they are they're distributing. So there's a reason they want UFC. And because of the low cost acquisition per viewer of WWE, there's an interest it's certainly in WWE. And the, the story out there was that Paul Levesque had a meeting a couple months ago with the head of Fox Sports. Uh, of course, WWE would be foolish not to be meet with everyone right now. 
with just all the renewals coming up here, of course you got to meet with lots of different stations because the whole game is you have to play X off of Y. If you don't play X off of Y, you basically run the risk of just going to someone and saying, what am I worth? And whatever they say, that's what you have to be worth. You know, it's like going to several employers or going to several supermarkets or whatever. you got to price shop a little bit. It's interesting that they sent Paul Levesque, isn't it? The yeah. perception I have of Paul Levesque is, well, obviously his, his title is vice president of talent, live events, and creative. And we get the impression that, like, I think he said last time, like, this is a guy who had to get some help putting together a PowerPoint presentation for the Performance Center and all that. The impression that I have of him is he's not somebody who necessarily does the business side of things. He's more of the wrestling side of, of things guy. So yeah. this is a meeting that I would expect someone like George Berrios to have more than Paul Levesque. Well, there's there's two things going on here, right? So number one, a couple of years ago, who was in charge of all those negotiations? It was Berrios and Wilson. Why was it Berrios and Wilson in 2014? Some people saw that as insulation by Steph and Paul to say basically if it goes poorly, it wasn't our fault. And if it goes well, look at these these management people who are actually pulling their weight and doing what they needed to do. And either way, Vince McMahon is shielded from all of it. Mm-hmm. Now, come out four years later – I don't even know if George and Michelle are totally in charge because if I'm not mistaken, isn't uh, the uh, the talent group, WME, aren't they actually also negotiating on behalf of WWE is my understanding is they're also right. helping negotiate the TV rights now. And then internationally, the sports agency, uh, La Grade or whatever they're called, they're helping negotiate and kind of get the sponsorship deals too. So there, there's kind of all these other – players out there. So when they say Paul Levesque met with them, we don't really know if that doesn't include the William Morris agency, the WME people, IMG people. Yeah. We also don't know if that includes George and other people like that. That could have also been in that meeting. Depending on how that meeting's reported, of course Triple H is going to pull a much higher profile than George Berrios. Now, if this is coming from the Sports Business Journal pages, they're going to know who the Berrioses of the world are. But if it's coming from, you know, TMZ, of course it's just going to be the Triple H having dinner with Ronda Rousey type news. Uh, there's also talk, according to the Observer, that Fox is interested in buying WWE, and, and uh, related to that, he's, uh, Dave says that evidently Viacom has also expressed interest in, in running pro wrestling, and they also would want to own the company just like they've owned Bellator. Yeah, I think Bellator is kind of that prime example, right, is that the idea being that sometimes it's it's cheaper to buy the chicken is instead of paying TV rights that are going to go up by $50 million or $100 million every few years, you own the whole organization. You can sell those TV rights. You know, it it could even be a situation where, hey, we own it, but yet we don't even be be the ones that air it. You know, if ESPN wants to throw a ton of money against it, let them have it. But um, we're talking, you know, obviously a several billion dollar valuation. Uh, The theory is basically that Vince McMahon eyes were – opened during the UFC sale that, hey, that this hit $4 billion. I think when people started talking $3 billion, there was a little scoffing in the air. And when it hit $4 billion, the scoffing turned to embarrassment when everyone then started contrasting with WWE and being like, well, this company's not even worth $2 billion. And, and Vince, you're telling me that they got $4 billion and they started up after you and they're able to get a lot of money out of pay-per-view? And they get lower ratings than you do on television and, you know, so forth and so on. And I think that really, you know, stuck in in Vince's craw a little bit that there was so many comparisons to UFC and this brand was embraced, was evaluated, was 
glorified. And again, same company, WME, a lot of the same players in a lot of cases. And um, so they're saying he's more interested in it. Now, what Vince uh, is allegedly interested in doing is maybe even just doing more of this alpha entertainment type stuff where he waits for the stock to shoot up to 30 35 $40, and he sells off part of his B shares that are worth a lot of money and you know, kind of cashes out in little bits but retains control and then still at some point has the ability to do a major sale when he wants to do a major sale. And so is 72-year-old Vince possibly interested in getting out of WWE? I don't think he's interested in getting out, but I think he's interested in getting a giant windfall payment and um, being recognized as an entertainment genius. Yeah. And, and I don't know if we want to do the math on the air. But he So Vince owns something like – 40 to 45 percent of all WWE shares still so that's less less than half but because of the special type of stock that only he and his family members hold he has 10 times the voting power of the number of shares that he has so he could go quite low right he could he could get a pretty small stake i think what would it be like he, would, he could still have like what 4.9 percent of the stock but or not 5.1 percent of the stock but still have controlling interest in, in terms something of voting like power. that probably yeah yeah it, and uh, the the market cap right now for WWE, which is you know shares times price at thirty two bucks a share, is about two and a half billion dollars, two point four eight billion dollars today. So it's you know it's it's sitting up there, and um, you you could see an evaluation for it where it's worth a couple billion. I, I do think it's a you know you got to have quite a game plan for what you're doing with the brand to buy it in this situation because you really have to make a decision just like George will talk about, about what ecosystem are you investing in and seeing the future for, right? Because the value to the stock is not the today. It's the, where is it going to be in five years and why does owning it today help you get? So is it that the digital rights are so valuable that, you know, you're going to be able to sell them to a big aggregator? Is it that the TV rights are going to continue to keep people in the bundle? And so this keeps Fox valuable in the bundle and so forth and so on. Is it that the brand itself has unlimited worldwide marketing potential and that you're going to be able to license this to stations that are growing in all these ecosystems around the world and countries around the world? And it plays so well that there's there's a story there. You could make all those arguments, but at the same time, uh, I, I don't know if WWE is as safe of an investment in terms of the future, the five-year future outlook here as an owner, as a lot of other things and properties and, and directions that you could be going right now. Because even Netflix, with all its brilliance, with all its data-driven analytics, they're still playing the one in ten game when it comes to what's going to be a hit, and they're spending more, as the Needham report that we're going to talk about in a little bit refers to they're spending more than anybody else you know on on content next year they're gonna they're gonna spend um estimated seven and a half billion dollars on tv and film content uh next year compared to five billion for amazon four and a half billion for youtube three billion for facebook and two billion for apple um but that doesn't mean they know what they're doing more than better than a lot of other people in fact you could argue that their hit ratio is actually getting lower than a lot of other people and so it's scary uh, to, to think about spending billions and billions. And, Netflix and is not profitable sure. though, right? I should, mm. I should know this as a Netflix investor. <laughs> Netflix is one of those things where, uh, like Amazon, I think they, they, they choose to invest a lot into future spending. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I, I, subscribers I, are going up and up like they haven't plateaued on subscribers yet. 
depends on what market know. you're talking about and what demographic you're talking moving about. Slower, right? Yeah. Well, I think actually the problem in the U.S. is that they're running out of U.S. subscribers to get at. Is that they they basically really done a good job of marketing the upper middle class Netflix U.S. subscriber, and so the question is kind of where's that next tier of market growth? And so the fact that they did a big price increase coming up here. Uh, why did they do that? Well, that's partially because they think the demand curve is at a point here where it's better just to extract more value from those customers rather than continuously seeking new in- enrollees. And then there's that question of, will there have to be a tiered service that's more tiered than what they do today about the screens and the type of quality of video? So uh, if anything, I think there is a concern that Netflix is running out of of marketplaces to expand into because places like Japan did not pick up very well. And you have the the issue that um, there's piracy, of course, and some marketplaces just not really adapting to necessarily paying for the streaming video. And then there's different levels of the the value of the content itself. I would say and, and some marketplaces Canada, don't. Even I love like, the content. And some marketplaces don't even like OTT, like Japan, as we might yeah, talk yeah. about in a minute. Well, in an well, hour. And, so. and, <laughs> Well, and also just the idea of like what today we put on like HBO, you go to uh, Canada and you might find that on the Netflix there where it's very different in terms of what the um, uh, what 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 content you can buy in the U.S. is very different and and is streamed in a very different way. But getting back to kind of Fox and UFC and WWE, um, the idea would be that Raw would this was this was to me the the. The biggest headline in there, which was the idea that Raw would move to the Fox Broadcast Network as a the internet wrestling fans dream here coming up as a two hour show because it would go from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. I'm sorry, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And then local coverage, local news would would come on at 10 the way that they have already set up for Fox. And this would be a Monday night show. And it's an intriguing idea. What do you think about that concept of Raw Monday nights? broadcast fox it would be good for the audience right because i think three hours proves to be too much for this audience we see that evident in the fact that the third hour is almost always the lowest rated hour now it, it wasn't that way for years and now we we've seen that attrition really drive that that dynamic the audience the audience has, has come to that conclusion i guess that they, they don't need to care as much about what happens in the third hour. And WWE, in fact, has deprioritized the third hour, in my view. When you look at some of the segments that they put on last now are very different from the weight, the gravity of the segments that they would put on last in, in years prior, where like the show would, the, the most built up and dramatic point of the show would always be the end. And now they do things like putting 205 Live in the final segment sometimes. And, and so it would be a huge audience boost for them because, A, it would get out of the cable bundle. Right. So even Brandon Howard Thurston, who doesn't have a cable bundle, could watch live on Monday nights. Correct. I would have to get my uh, my antenna going. But yes. Yeah. But it would be a huge, huge opportunity for them to to do that. And, so that's, and Fox that's is and Fox is a UHF here. So I would be able to tune it more easily. Yeah. <laughs> it would be really intriguing to see, you know, that, that that that's a huge amount of investment to basically say we're going to allow it to um be on a broadcast network. And and this is something I've said for years was a source of attrition for the WWE audience was when you moved away from being a network, from being a cable bundle only 
property and it was all on on sci-fi and other channels and it got off UPN and WB and all those others, you lost the ability to attract these people that weren't necessarily in that ecosystem. And I think that was huge. And I do think that hurt them. And and you could argue that that was even a um, reason that SmackDown was so popular during the Rey Mysterio, uh, Eddie Guerrero angles was because you were able to reach an audience that was heavily Spanish speaking and maybe was not in a pay TV, TV ecosystem that was able to watch your programming at the time. So I've, it, I've always, is it, isn't it more valuable to an FS one or a cape any, any, any given cable channel with USA network, isn't it more valuable to a cable channel to have WWE than it is for a broadcast channel like Fox or NBC or whatever. Depends on the advertising revenue because that's 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 the big argument is like hey you want to stay in the bundle you need live programming like us WWE right which is why in this situation SmackDown would stay on FS1 making that about more valuable show and I do have this question about whether or not WWE could really force itself into two hours again. Or whether or not they would take that third hour and then pop it up on FS1. Yeah, I, th- I think there would have to be some trade-off. Is that okay? I, we're going to we're going to cut from three to two. Then we, we need an extra hour doing something else with that hour that's still really valuable to us. Because I could honestly see two hours on Fox and then one hour on FS1. I, I could see them at least at first for year one trying something like that, where they still are afraid to kind of give up the ghost. Part of it is is that. Um, and this is important to kind of remind everyone is that you're signing international contracts too, right? So even if Fox's raw is only two hours, what about all those international obligations that you've signed where you've kind of inferred that you're going to do a three hour raw? Yeah. Well, you either have to renegotiate those, which you can or, or cut the, you know, take a hit on it or you figure out a way to give them a third hour of raw. Right. Yeah. So I, I could almost see a situation where, it's a third hour somehow else broadcast domestically just so that they're able to keep it up on three hours. Now, what they're doing Maybe right now is they're trying to 205 live as the third hour. Could be. Could be. You know, they, they are announcing the domestic deal and then doing the international deal for UK and India. And ultimately, it, it matters what they do in US, UK, India, Canada. They already signed a 10 year deal. It was a 10-year deal that they signed with Rogers when they announced it there. And that relationship is close enough that I think they could probably change it if they needed to, to say, hey, we're not going to give you three hours. We're only going to give you two hours, et cetera. But um, – But would they accept – but that third hour is going to be like 205 Live and, and the ratings. Yeah, you People, people are going to fall off big in terms yeah. of viewership. So so that's why that's why I think there's this this – I think people love to fantasy book being like, oh, we'll just do a two-hour thing. Or we'll just cut Raw from three hours to two hours. It's easy. But I think they forget the nature of contracts internationally, you know, that you have to you have to think about all the different marketplaces that you're you're giving it to and also the number of hours you're talking about producing. They love to brag how many hours they produce a year. Well, if that number starts going down, that's going to sound funny to the shareholders. Now, you can sell it. You can make it make sense. But you have to be really conscientious about the fact that you're changing things. So I think it would be a big, big, big change. Um, I still, you know, this is a fun fantasy book. I think it's a fun um, uh, uh, play X versus Y. And it says a lot about we need to understand where UFC is going to land. I still feel like NBCU is where WWE is going to end up. And we'll get to some of the reasons for that in in a little bit later here when we talk about some of the other programming that's coming up. 
But uh, I think it's a really fascinating uh, little situation. Uh, FS1 with SmackDown, I think, you know, it's it reminds me a lot of when, you know, Nash- Nashville Network was becoming Spike TV. And uh, they were trying to rebrand. And so what do you do? You throw some programming on there and then you try to get people to understand that that's what that TV station is and you keep it strong. And we've seen the same thing happening with FS1. Uh, I actually just heard, and this is really old news, so I was kind of the last one to hear, but did you know Spike is rebranding to the Paramount uh, channel? I think I'd heard that. Yeah, so they they are also trying to get kind of a better uh, uh, combination of all the different uh, channels that are under that umbrella together. And they're, they're pushing, of course, a lot of fight stuff still on Spike there. But um, it, it will be curious because UFC does use a lot of hours of footage to fill up FS1 and FS2. And WWE has tons and tons of hours of footage. And what do we always hear on, this, on these calls? We can't believe how many hours of footage these fans seem to want. Yeah. So um, it's it's yeah, a great way to buy eyeballs. ring content. Can you believe that? Yeah. But like we've always said over and over again, the value for our for for advertising dollars is low for wrestling. Really low. Like a third or a fifth or a tenth of what some of these other sports are getting, even hockey. So yeah, that's going to, to, to jump ahead real quick. Like in, in, in BTIG says that the W is receiving less than half of the NHL, a third of the UFC, a quarter of NASCAR. So there you have it. Yeah. A third of the UFC is a really important number, which means WWE can give some huge eyeballs and get they're still not going to get a lot of advertising dollars in theory. Now, it's all dependent on who is making those deals. NBCU has spent a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of effort trying to improve their advertising profile, and they've been bragging a lot about that over the last few years here. So Fox would kind of be starting from ground zero. But at the same time, UFC is not the easiest thing in the world to sell, and they've done a great job with it. So it it will say that they have a lot of advertisers, at least historically, that were interested in them. Yeah. But – um. Dave said it's all about the rights fees because things like live shows, licensing, merchandising are steady, but they aren't likely to increase much. Yeah, uh, that was an interesting comment. I know I had done um, some graphs the other day looking at uh, the five-year Kagers on all the different sectors. You didn't even know I was going to talk about this because I didn't put in the notes. Um, so I'm quickly looking at my notes from the uh, F4W website yeah. where I when, when posted. When, when we're going to talk about Kagers, I always like to have a heads up. Yeah. Do you know what a Kager is? It is the compound annual. It's 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 basically like the year. Of oh, year. you're so close. Compound annual growth rate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and you'll hear hear this said by um, uh, George Barrios all the time. He loves this word Kager. C A G R. It's not a it, word. It's really this includes it, it excludes the people who are trying to understand what he's talking about. And he only it's like you only you only have to talk to the people who are smart business people when you use special words like that. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, a couple uh, – on January 1st, I posted this thing where I had looked at 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16. And then for 2017, I had taken the four-year quarter, the four-quarter um, rolling number. So Q4 of last year through Q3 of this year uh-huh. and just said, you know, what was our revenues for those that period of time and what was our OBITA operating, in, operating income before depreciation and amortization? Uh, what were those numbers? And what were the CAGRs, the, the, the compound annual growth rates on that? Meaning if I took my number in 2012 and I take this growth percentage and then I just applied that five years in a row, 
So $100 at 10% growth becomes $110, then 10% growth would become $121 and so forth and so on. At the end, I would get to the final, the 2017 number. So what you what you do when you do a Kager is you really just take the beginning number, the end number, you do a ratio of the two of them, and then you put them to the power of one over the power of the number of years that you're looking at minus one, and that's your Kager percentage. It's a really easy calculation. So the Kagers on the Sounds different easy. revenue streams. Television has grown from 141 million in 2012 to 263 and a half million in the last four quarters. That's a 13% Kager. The network segment, this includes both WWE Network, but also since I'm going back to 2012, this includes the pay-per-view. This also includes the tiny bit of WWE Classics on demand that was in there. So this it grew from 87.7% or 87.7 million in 2012 to 195.4 million in that's, 2017. That's what segment? That's the network segment. Okay. That's a 17% Kager. That, that's, that's a weep though. No, no, this is just revenue. Just, revenue. just revenue. Okay. Yep. Live events have grown from 106.6 million in 2012 to 155 million in the last four quarters of 2017. Mm-hmm. So that's about an 8% Kager. So we've gone from television at 13, network at 17, live events at 8. Then you get licensing. It's grown from 46.3 to 50.9. That's a 2% Kager. So very slow growth. Mm-hmm. Digital media revenue. We can talk all we want about how much growth there's been in the views, but the digital media revenue has grown from 25.7 million in 2012 to 30.2 in 2017. That's 3% Kager. Mm -hmm. WWE Shop, on the other hand, has grown from 14.8 million to 36.3 million. That's a 20% Kager. It's actually the highest of everybody, if you can believe it. Um, A lot of that came because in 2015, 2016, and 2017, Shop went from being a 15 to a $20 million business to a $27 million business. And then the last two years here, it's been more than $35 million. And, and briefly, why is that again? Well, international stuff, question. international markets have opened up and Amazon, things like that. I think, yeah, I think some of the reason that WW Shop has grown so much has been that they've improved their ability to get into the international markets and sell. So they, you know, made a sponsor, they made a deal with Amazon UK, they made a deal with the sold shop in India. And so they've done a little bit more of this local marketing where they don't necessarily have to ship the products themselves, but they kind of have local vendors that do it. Um, and I think they've done a much better job probably marketing products. Uh, I think they might have just found a better, you know, for all we talk about, you know, Cena plus Reigns, they they sell a lot of product. Yeah. And compared to 2012, maybe this has been a, a you know, a big growth for them. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't tell you actually all the pieces there. That might actually be a really interesting article to talk about. You know, WWE Shop has increased 20 percent in the last couple of years here. Uh, does anyone know why? <laughs> um, venue merchandise. I'm sorry, uh, home home entertainment first. Uh, home entertainment, of course, uh, is basically DVDs. Yeah. You know, that's what we think about. Um, and I think that's, this, that's the segment that's going to have the most definite decreases over oh, yes. the future. Here, let me let me just read you the year-by-year numbers here. 33 million, 2012. Mm-hmm. 24.5 million, 2013. 27 million, 2014. 13 million, 2015. 13 million, 2016, 12 million, last four quarters, negative 18.5% growth. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you could almost say that, physical media. Yeah, this is going to be DVDs. this is going to be your DVD sales. And it also has a lot to do with who is your distribution partner. 
So one of the reasons that they had a good year, you know, it actually went up from 2013 to 2014 is I believe that was when they switched partners from uh, Vivendi Group to like Warner Brothers. And it, it will have to do with the timing. It will have to do with, you know, the way they deal with the inventory. There's sometimes they even change the way that they deal with kind of unsold stock because you can either sell it kind of as I understand it. And this I could be wrong, but I, I think you can basically choose either I sell it to you. And then if you can't sell it, I have to take it back or I can sell it to you much cheaper and then you have to keep it. So depending on, you know, which deal you take, you're going to obviously have different economics. And they also got kind of a some positive money in a settlement, I believe. Um, uh, so this, this story that, you know, things like live events, licensing and, and, and merchandise, they're steady, but they're not likely to increase much. That, that seems false to me. Like they're live, live events are, are an increasing business. Yeah. They're, they've gone up gonna, 8%. It's going to continue to be that because they're going to continue to run more and more shows as much as they can. And this 205 live thing isn't going that well, but they're, they're going to figure out ways to run shows, whether it's through NXT or other brands that they may create in the future or because they're doing this brand split, which allows them to run more events. And they're going to continue to increase ticket prices, which I think is going to happen as long as people continue to get a little bit more hardcore over time, which I think they still are. Um, well, so so let, let's, let's finish up this balance sheet. I know this is so exciting radio for everyone, but uh, venue merchandise, 19 million, we're up to 24 million. That's a 5% Kager. WWE Studios started at eight million last four quarters, been about eleven million. That's about eight percent Kager. And corporate and other, which is appearances and all the other kind of randoms, from two million bucks to five million bucks. That's an eighteen percent Kager, but that one's the hardest one to kind of break out what what that's about. So overall, WWE's had about a ten percent Kager. So they went from 484 in 2012 to 508 to 542 to 658 in 2015 to 730 or 729 in 2016 to 784 in the last four quarters. So 10% growth. So you could say what is above 10% and below 10%. So what is driving, what is hotter than average and what is below average. So you could say television network are definitely above average. WWE shop has been above average. And then if you said what's below average, live events has definitely been below average, and WWE Studios has been below average. And then if you want to talk really, really slow, it would be licensing, digital media, and to a lesser degree, venue merchandise at only 5%. Now, a 5% Kager on, on um, uh, venue merchandise plus an 8% Kager on live events says to me, yeah, there's some growth there, but not explosive growth. You know, when you're talking 5% or 8% growth, we're not talking 50 plus million dollars more in a year the way you can on a TV negotiation where you can actually ratchet up your fees quite a lot in a single year. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with Dave in the sense of saying TV rights are the biggest single thing you can do in a year that's going to change it year over year. And and what I didn't really talk a lot about here is the OBITA. And the OBITA is really important because while network grew at 17% Kager on revenue, it only grew at a 7% Kager on OBITA compared to television, which grew at a 13% revenue and a 20% on, on OBITA. So there's a huge difference when you've gone from 50 million on TV to 131 million on TV for an OBITA for basically profit compared to a network, which started at 40 million, dropped to 28 million, dropped to negative 2 million got back up to 48 million, went to 43 million, and this last year is probably sitting around 60 million. So television is still twice as profitable in terms of absolute dollars that it generates than the network. And the network is growing much slower on revenue profitability, which says a lot about, you know, you can grow that top line number, but you're selling it for 10 bucks a piece 
compared to a pay-per-view you were selling at 60 and splitting into 30 apiece. So there's a lot to be said about the TV rights is probably your best way of driving a lot of revenue. And even stuff like digital media, that revenue stream has actually gone down in OBITA over those years. Licensing has gone down. Live events has grown by 10%, so they've done really well. Venue merchandise has grown by 7%. And WWE Shop, again, 30% Kager on OBITA profitability, which is really interesting to me because that says to me that they've actually figured out quite a lot about how to push that revenue stream there. You think they're going to get to $60 million OBITA for 2017? On the network? Yeah. Um, they're at 58, uh, 58.7 for the last four quarters. So I don't think $60 million is out, outrageous. For the last three quarters, I get $43.2 million. This is so exciting. We're doing math. but And then you add in Q4 of last year. Right. Well, I'm just really thinking, well, what do you think they're going to report for Q4 2017? I, 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 think, I think oftentimes they unless they're – They report 17 to get to $60 million. Yeah, so yeah. maybe they'll get more. You know, yeah. maybe it'll be higher than sixty million. And that for would all. be, they would be more profitable than pay per view. Certainly, than it just pay per view alone. Before you consider all the oh yeah yeah yeah, it was it was forty million in twenty twelve forty one point three. So I mean, they're they're already more profitable than they were for just pay per view alone that many years ago. Now, what I would say though is, if you added up all those years together. And said, what would it have been if I had just stayed the course? Mm-hmm. That's a different number. And so you sacrificed a lot of profitability to, to go down, quote, the long, dark hallway, as, as George likes to say. They sacrificed a lot of profitability. Well, they, they sacrificed Good the entire year 2014, basically. 2014 and 2013 to a lesser degree because they yeah. dropped only $28 million because they had so many um, – so much – cost of startup you know it cost them millions and millions and millions just to get ready to hit the button mm-hmm. um but they they rebounded and the the key is television has been going up 2014 it was 62 million on obita 2015 it was 97 so they got 35 million extra that year then they got another 20 million extra the next year and then they got another at least 11 million and it's going to be higher than that because that's a a four quarter number where i'm taking last year's four fourth quarter television obita and we know this quarter's television obita is going to be a lot higher than last year's yeah. so you know you're still probably going to see another 20 million you know um i think uh btig was estimating that they're going to finish the year at something like 120 million obita and yeah. my calculations here only have them at 90 so that suggests that that's almost 30 million higher than um maybe where my number was They've got 2017 ending at 112 million a week. Before. 112. So that's 20. So 20 million higher than than what I had in my calculations here, yeah. and almost all of that's coming from television in my mind. Mm-hmm. A little bit of it's going to come from live events. A little bit of it is going to come from uh, WWE Shop because they usually have a really good fourth quarter, and a little bit of it's going to come from virtual man- venue merchandise. But the, my takeaway from this is there's a story to be written about WWE Shop right now yeah. that I think um, maybe we should be looking at a little bit more. And it we should be a positive number of, story, so maybe they would be willing to talk. Yeah, and I think it would be a story about um, we'd want to look at total number of shipments to understand. You know, there's been a lot of talk about you know, are they disc, are they selling things below cost uh, when it comes to WWE Shop ever to kind of just move merchandise out, and then what's the variety of things they're doing? I think they've suggested in some of these interviews that they've learned a lot about direct to consumer marketing. You know, the 10 million accounts they quote unquote have. That they have a better understanding of what people want, and in theory, that's supposed to also help them with creation of new merchandise. Yeah. So, 
Uh, I think that's still really a low OEBDA uh, segment for them, like one one to two million, maybe three million per quarter. Yeah, they only there. make eight and a half million dollars total. Uh, the last four quarters or seven million last year was the real number. And, uh, and on, a, on a basis of thirty six, thirty five, yeah. So it's it's not a profit. It's only you know twenty percent OBDA type thing compared to a 50% OBDA television rights. Yeah. So it's not a high profit margin area, but I, I do think it's a success story. I mean, it's like, it's, it's bringing in um, more revenue than venue merch, but venue merch is bringing in more profit, which is interesting. And you could argue they're the same thing, right? WWE some shop, very similar products. Yeah. Yeah. And, and venue merch is, should be cheaper or should be a higher profitable thing because you're not shipping exactly. And you're dealing with dedicated fans. So the marketing is cheaper Yeah, and you're not running a website. You're not doing credit card. Well, you're doing credit card fees, but yeah, I mean, the other thing to get those vans out there and open them up and put people out there to sell them. The other thing I've always will harp on is corporate and other. Now we don't, we talked about, we don't really know what the revenue stream for corporate and other is, but you know what the OBITA, corporate and other number explodes 2012 it was 116 negative 2013 negative 127 2014 negative 151 2015 negative 172 2016 negative 178 2017 negative 196 million and what is that well that's the performance center that's all the salaries and other costs i believe that are going against employee salaries employee salaries that's all the legal fees that's all the fees for the new analytics department that's all the fees for um i think all the streaming and the buildings and the that, that wouldn't be under network streaming um maybe some of the backbone stuff is what i mean hmm. like the anal- like i say the analytics department i don't think they put the analytics department against the network they'd say it helps everybody <laughs> the idea of corporate and others is, is it would be for all the expenses and again i'm i'm talking Maybe I'm saying wrong. I would love for the accountants to fix me. Yeah. It, it would be the stuff that you're not applying to a single segment that is benefiting the entire company. And th- this, is this, this is the area where they could play loosest you know, with, with the accounting here, right? If they wanted to make one segment look more profitable, they could just say, oh, let's put that expense in corporate or another. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some rules and some some ideas around why they put things in corporate and other. Yeah. Uh, I think they've been – I mean, they've been breaking out a lot of their legal costs to say, hey, this is what's hitting our bottom line here. Um, I just always point this out when people are like, well, NXT makes profit, right? I'd be like, well, if you want to look at live event revenue, sure. But if you want to actually look at the cost of all the people that you're employing here and the, the services and the, the building and all that, you got to include that corporate and other numbers. I think the point is NXT makes got money. got 11% a year. I think the point is NXT makes money. It makes more money than they're expecting it to make in the first place. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's they're putting money into this performance center and they're paying all these wrestlers to be there and they're running shows. But now they're they're not just running shows in the Florida Loop, which they get some money out of those at least. I'd if you're keeping everybody under contract and you're going to run these shows anyway, I guess they're at least they're, they're selling, they're making some ticket money off of that, even though it's only like two, 300 people per event or whatever, but they're also running that national tour or international tour. And, uh, they're making at least some of their money back. Yeah. My, my, my entire thing has always been that WWE has the luxury to subsidize themselves right now because they're in a situation where they're not concerned that, um, it's worth them to just leave these people out in the cold. And so they have the, the luxury of subsidizing the UK 
and subsidizing uh, NXT and tying up all this talent for a long time because they can. So it's it's a value you get by having a very profitable television deal that escalates every year. And in the future, if they don't have that escalation or if they have some kind of other, you know, belt tightening they need to do, that's going to be where it's going to hurt them. The, the criticism with NXT is that look, you're and then the performance center in particular is that you're you're bringing in all these people here to turn them into pro wrestlers, but the majority of the wrestlers who go on to become the bigger stars are wrestlers who were brought up not so much in the performance center, but were brought up on the indies. Oh yeah, I mean I, it's, it's hilarious to read. I think last year's uh, annual report specifically referred to the homegrown talent of people like Sami right. Zayn and Kevin, Kevin Owens. Owens. Yeah, there are obvious exceptions to that, like Charlotte and Braun Strowman. And Alexa Bliss, I Alexa would say, Bliss. Is, is a yep. you know they they used her at the last year's um, business partner summit as an example of someone who moved from beginning to end, and I think she she is a fair example. Sasha Banks is in the middle for an example like that. Bailey's yeah. in the middle for an example like that. Those are people that had a background in wrestling and then got into the WWE system. But people like Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, Samoa Joe, Finn Balor, they are not performance center products as much as they are products of the wrestling industry yeah 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 i mean i i think it would be silly to pretend that samoa joe's legacy in in the world of professional wrestling was defined by his time starting in nxt shinsuke nakamura <laughs> yeah so uh we got way off track there uh i i, I threw a threw a real curveball there when i decided yeah. to go into the deep dive the, the but, point uh, i want to make though about the network is that I, th- I think there's still quite a bit of potential to be realized with the network because they're going to tier eventually maybe not this year maybe next year but they're going to tier eventually and they're going to get more money out of their more hardcore subscriber base yeah yeah absolutely and even if george himself even, even if said su- subscriber people growth, have said we we might be too we might be overthinking this even if subscriber growth is only going to be, I think as BTIG agrees, in the in the single digits of, of percent in terms of growth, and I think it, it probably will be, um, but there's still more profit even if the subscriber rate doesn't go up. There's going to be more money to be made because eventually they're going to raise the rate or tier the rate and get more money out of each subscriber on average. Yeah, yeah. I I absolutely agree, and, and um, you know, I just... Uh, resubscribe to WWE. Oh, um, you let your your subscription lapse. You know, I had a credit card thing where my bank has now reissued my credit card so many freaking times. Really? Uh, oh, they're always like, "Oh, you, you merchant has compromised your information, and we're going to have to send you a new one." You need a new. Bank. And what's fascinating about that is that um, the Bank of Thurston is accepting applicants. You know, <laughs> this last time it happened, um, some services got my new number without me giving it to them like netflix netflix got my new credit card number without me telling them their new my new credit card number really because the bank automatically told netflix wow did, did which you, blew did you my give mind them permission to do that i think they must have permission because in some they, terms they, and service agreement somewhere so that was fascinating to me that they knew my new because i went to update it in netflix and it was there because i wasn't so worried about wwe network lapsing but i was worried about netflix lapsing um, and, uh, they knew already. So that was fascinating to me, uh, versus, uh, WWE network. I just kind of said, eh, I'm going to wait on it. And then for, since I, my birthday got all coughed out, I decided I was going to have a Royal rumble party. So, uh, I, I then had to resubscribe. Make sure. I had a Royal rumble. Are you all right there? Yeah. That was just my mouth. Sorry. Okay. 
<laughs> got very worried that you you had you had collapsed out of exhaustion. Yeah, I'll put the mouse off there. to the side and I'll go back to using the touchpad like I usually do. Uh uh-huh. Um are are you still a WWE Network subscriber? I'm a day one WWE Network subscriber. I don't think I've ever lapsed. Same for GPW World. My my goodness, what a, what a uh, what a dedicated and and excellent person you are. I got a lot of well, criticism. I have, I have a part time job to do, so that is true. That is this is our part time job, and a lot of it involves just randomly talking about WWE stock, which is up to like I said, thirty two dollars eighteen cents as of right now. And um, one of the things I had you read this week was some of the uh, the different discussions about WWE stock that has been out in the news. One was from DT- BTIG, yeah. which is a um, Let's call them more. Uh, I'm trying to think if I even know what BTIG stands for. It's uh, Brandon Ross, Rich Greenfield, Mark Kelly, or were the people that wrote this equity research paper. Um, they are guys that have been covering WWE for a couple of years now, and they're very big. They're very Brandon Thurston, as I would say, yeah. on uh, the future of media and the idea that you know Facebook and Netflix and Amazon and those people um, have so much value. They have so much dollars to spend. Why wouldn't they just throw that at WWE? And um, so they wrote this new one here saying $36 as their price target. They do which, enjoy fantasizing about what the future of media will be like. But you know what I have to say is of all the the uh, kind of price targets that we've heard out there, BTIG at 36 bucks, Chase, JP Morgan Chase at 37 uh, Wells Fargo at 43 Guggenheim at 40 um, this $36 charge, I think that's reasonable. I don't think that's a crazy number at all. I think that this stock will easily hit $36 in the next 20, 12 months here. That, that's Barring, not what you said a few episodes ago. A few episodes ago, you said $31.92. For Dece- no, no, that, no. To be fair, that was your prediction for December 31st, 2018. Exactly. And I bet you anything, if you listen to what I said during that time, I said it will go higher than that. Uh, okay. I just said by the time they do the domestic announcement, it will go high and then it will crash. And my my take on it was thirty was that thirty one ninety two was a fair price as of December of that year. I don't know. Reading all now, these um all these analyses make me feel like we went a little low here for December possibly. But again, I was mm-hmm. I was very keyed into the idea that as of December, this is baked into all these announcements. The price rise oftentimes has been on the the. Uh, lead up to the news rather than the news itself mm-hmm. you know we've seen a lot of times where WWE stock it at best drops you know <laughs> or stays flat when they get big news it, it doesn't often go really really high occasionally it will go you know 10 percent higher or something like that but a lot of times what's happening is it hits these big stock it the news happens this and then a lot of people start selling yeah, because it's all results. about the expectation yeah yeah. yeah, that's what so we feel. I, that's what we've seen a lot of times. And on the day of earnings releases, we've seen the stock take a tumble. Not not in the last quarter or two, but before that, there's been a pattern of that. Just a lot of sell on results and buy on speculation. It seems. And so it's a big question here about basically how high will it get? That that's really what I feel like people are are trying to yeah. back into here is just if they're at thirty two dollars of excitement now. Will, for instance, the UFC deal being announced, if the UFC deal is announced and the rumor comes out that it's with Fox and it's for, let's say, $250 million, will that make people more excited about WWE or less? I'll tell you, if it's for $400 million, yeah, people are going to go wild about WWE. If it's for you know $200 million, I think people are going to be a little uh, annoyed with WWE. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, to me, it's UFC needs to announce a number north of 250 in order for it to, to positively impact WWE. Because I think everyone right now pretty much seems to agree WWE should be able to get about 1.3 for their deal yeah. from the U.S. Right. And the big question is what is going to happen in U.K. and what is going to happen in India? And the BTIG analysis, what do they say about India? They think that they could get as much as double their current value for the India deal. Uh, going from he, BTIG estimates that the India deal is worth <sighs> about $35 million. I think that's per year. And they speculate that it could double up to $70 million. And that's that's a that thirty five million is yeah that's a per year number but that's also the the number they end the end at in uh, twenty nineteen I think it is. Okay. Um, that's when because the, the current deal would end. Yeah, because right now they're going up by I don't I think it's like four million or five million a year kind of. They, they suggest that so, like it's it's all a five percent increase. That's that's their estimate. Like each, each well, year yeah. for each deal is just five percent. That's what the escalating ex, you know, no. growth rate is. No, 5%. no, no. I yeah. 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 I think what they mean more by that is, is that 5% numbers, they're just saying out of the whole bundle of deals we have, we can assume that they're going to continue to go up at 5%. On average. And they're really talking about the Astro and the, the Super World Sports or whatever it is in South Africa and the Columbia deal and the Fox Sports Mexico. Like all those deals that are not the prime deals mm-hmm. is only going to move up at 5% a year for their escalations. Mm-hmm. Um they they suggested that the other big five markets they would have would also get about a 30% premium right. to where they are today. Um, the biggest difference here is going to be India, if they were to double their deal, would go from being about the same size as the UK deal to being way bigger than the UK deal. Right. And if anything, what I'd say BTIG is under evaluating. And my guess is it's because it's much easier to tell this fantasy story about India than it is to understand is the UK market. The UK market is really complex right now and it's very confusing with all these different deals going on between Fox and Sky and B Sky B and all these other, you know, players that are in that marketplace. And I kind of feel like BTIG is punting on trying to understand what is happening into that negotiation and just kind of trying to focus on India. And the argument that, hey, WWE made Jinder Mahal your champion, India is going to be a big deal. I don't know if I buy that. What about you? Well, BTIG has a, like a whole section where they talk about why they think India is being overlooked. And they say there's 12 million weekly viewers for Raw alone. Uh, and then they also consider, well, maybe they'll split out rights in India f- as far as here's linear TV rights to some TV station, then here's digital rights to someone like Facebook, because they point out Facebook made a bid on the Indian cricket rights. Um, and uh, they point out that Sony, which is what they're currently on, I think they're on Sony 10, right? And TNA is on Sony 6, or Impact Wrestling. So Sony uh, is going to be urged to keep WWE because they were going after cricket as well, which I think is, is, as George Barrios tells us, is the most popular sport uh, besides WWE. But WWE is number two, and and cricket is number number, number one. But uh, they say that uh, Sony was trying to get cricket, but they couldn't get it, and they're the ones who currently own WWE, so they're going to be even more urged to keep WWE, which means that maybe they'll make they'll make a, a bigger payment for it and i think it's all bs yeah so <laughs> i i think there's a big opportunity for india to spend a lot on their normal television rights for wwe i don't d- discount that at all i think this whole amazon story is complete left field not understanding your marketplace at all 
cricket is so much more wildly popular in India than WWE. It's not even funny. That's like trying to compare football to movies. Yeah, movies get popular for short periods of time, and certain movies are popular, but football is enormous here. Shall we do the misleading Google trends? Keep talking. I'll look. (laughs) And then on top of that, even George Barrios himself was burying India in his latest TMT talk. He didn't quite do it directly. Well, here's what he said. He said, well, you know, people talked about the WWE Network in India – but, you know, we did admit that we only priced it in local currency at $9.99. We uh, competed with our, our TV deal by putting the pay-per-views on the TV deal, but then we also tried to sell them through the network. And we didn't localize it. We didn't put it in local language. So until you – and it has spotty broadband, doesn't have off uh, uh, necessarily um, a mobile access and so forth. And, and so to me, it's like saying the reason Amazon is getting the cricket rights – is completely different than the reason that Amazon would want to get the WWE rights because this cricket opportunity is enormous for them to to absolutely capture such a big number one player and for them to brand and Amazon is willing to loss lead with this because they want to get that next as they say the next billion users online that's totally different than what you're doing about why you'd be investing in WWE I think it's just fantasy talk to be talking about Amazon bidding for WWE rights in India and it's going to be a traditional television market deal just the way it's been for the last couple cycles. I do think they have a lot of opportunity to get a lot more money. $35 million going to 70 sounds rich to me. It really always depends on who is bidding against who. But they're it's number just one. that simple. The number one country for WWE on digital is India. Yeah, and they couldn't even fill a house show of 7,000 people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but Jinder Mahal, so, he's, uh, he's in great shape. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of these cases where, yes, you can get a lot of people to watch, but is it worth $70 million for you? Um, That's a big difference. You just threw in here a cricket versus WWE thing here, which shows that cricket is usually 2X to 3X as popular. Um, And then the ideas of professional wrestling and wrestling being, you know, uh, absolutely just cricket over the past 12 months rates at a relative value of 45, whereas WWE rates at a relative value of 13. So, yeah, it's like 4X almost. Yeah. And and even that, I think, is is overstating WWE. I mean, if I think if you were to start looking up some cricket stars and compare them to WWE stars, it wouldn't even be in the same stratosphere. If you were to, to look up, you know, even the name of the cricket leagues in India. And and compare them to WWE, they wouldn't be in the same stratosphere because that's kind of like comparing the word football versus NFL. I bet you NFL is more popular in some ways. I mean, football is a bad example because it has so many meanings. Comparing IPL to WWE is much closer, 16 to 12. Oh, it is. Okay. All right. So so that's not as as crazy. But my my point here is that I think people are way over reading Amazon with cricket uh, and trying to conflate that with WWE is in India is just silly. But – Will they get a double? I don't think they'll get a double. I think they'll get about a one and a half. I think they'll get a good upgrade. I think WWE has invested a lot of time and effort with Sony now doing the localization on the shows and, you know, kind of trying to develop this marketplace. I think George Berrios, if anything, will be willing to take a haircut on India just to be able to keep a strong uh, 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 foothold. And it's always going to come down to which media group is bidding against which media group that week. It's it's like the UK. It's a very competitive thing where it's one of the last marketplaces that has such a huge me- traditional media 
a footprint where you can make a lot of money there if you're selling just the right rights at the right time. NFL doesn't but even show I up on the radar in India, by the way. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't think NFL would. I meant George Barrios told us no one understands the game. No one understands the game, as he put it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's silly to me too. And then and the fact that people have started to use the uh, the Facebook mix match challenge as a test case for why you know people are going to bid on this. Again, it's a 20-minute show for a limited run that w, that uh, Facebook is using because their Facebook Watch app is 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 considered basically a giant money spend for them that they need to figure out. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you know it's not about long-form programming. They 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 do not seem to be trying to get go in that direction. They seem to be trying to go into the snippet, bite-sized programming type approach. Right. So a 20-minute show makes a lot of sense for Facebook to get into, and it makes a lot of sense for WWE to in, indulge them in. Yeah. And I think there's, so, there's a lot of suitors for the digital stuff for WWE, I think. Like, if, if even if, say, Facebook Watch bombs, there's still YouTube out there, and there's still Amazon out there, and there's still Apple that may, yeah. may have some use for WWE content. On a digital platform. I would love. I I personally would say if WWE restructures some of their positions so that we saw a better understanding of what they're doing for quote unquote these ecosystems, I could see them being able to leverage that. What I mean by that is that I do feel like you kind of need a div- digital EVP that you know thinks a lot about that stream of consciousness and maybe they'll argue that's that's um old school thinking to you know put people into boxes and say this person's in charge of digital and this person's in charge of linear but um i i just think at a certain point you're jumping through a lot of hoops and you're trying to run after a lot of different uh chickens in the attempt to make it all make sense and work when in in reality you need to focus on your core stuff and make sure that's really working because you can pursue a thousand digital products and it's still probably going to have less value and less impact than just getting your core stuff right all the time to the right consumers. What does that mean, getting your core stuff right to the right consumers? Television deal done. Yeah. Your television programming right. Your merchandising right. Your star recruiting right. Your live tour optimized. How well do you think they're doing in those areas without getting into another three-hour podcast? I don't know. How well do you think they're doing? I think, I think creatively they're not doing well at all. But I think to, to make a long story short, I think creatively they're not doing well at all. But on the business side, they're doing pretty well in terms of the live attendance. They're trying to raise the volume on that, or not the live attendance, but the live business. They're trying to raise the volume on, yeah, and on the attendance too, just in, in the sheer total number of attendees. Um, I think that's the key. is It's going to be fascinating to see if we've hit a uh, we've hit a, a a curve here with live events because we're seeing them try to ramp that up more and more and more. They want to get kind of above that four hundred number. Yet we're seeing some of the lowest attended events that they've ever had in modern era, where you know we're having shows with a thousand people or less, or canceling two or five live shows. And it, it's curious to me about whether or not they're going to hit that kind of inflection point where they have to either drop ticket prices again or reduce you know try to optimize their touring schedule more but but anyway then w network i think there's still like i like i said earlier there's still a potential to fulfill there in terms of tiering and i think in terms well, of tv and, rights they're but, still they're still making a lot of money on tv rights and whatever they're doing with their tv ratings and their viewership hasn't hurt them enough to where it looks where everybody's not predicting at least 1.3x for the us tv deal 
Yeah, but I mean, it, it's that thing we we're just talking about there—that third hour. If your third hour is is losing viewers consistently over a year, yeah, you know, are you are you sure that you have your fundamentals down? Are you okay with that? Could you imagine if like a movie? You know, if Game of Thrones, <laughs> their their trend line was people watch for the first thirty minutes and then they just start tuning out. Yeah, yeah, but wrestling WWE at least is not a, it's not a movie. It doesn't. Uh, okay, and and but I, I'm just I saying think that's like, something that they've conceded uh, at least. Like I said earlier, they they don't put the most dramatic point of the of the show at the end so much anymore. Sure, I'm just saying to me, it's those fundamentals that that it it, it kicks you in the end. Is the reason these big companies fail? is that they get so far away from their product. Next thing you know, you're Kodak, and you launch a cryptocurrency, and suddenly your stock goes up 40%, yeah. which is what actually happened. Um, but it's like, how does that happen? Uh, back in, was it 2000, 2001, Kodak had a higher market cap than Apple. And you could ar- argue that Apple helped kill Kodak because the rise of digital photography. Yeah. And Kodak would have been perfectly leveraged to take advantage of everything. And instead, it imploded on itself. Kodak should and, have gone into cell phones. Well, just all sorts of things that they could have been doing. Yeah. And a lot of it just came from the fact that the complacency drove them to mistake the innovation and the changes that were happening and actually address the marketplace correctly. And that oftentimes comes from the top being very complacent with what worked in the past. And also at the same time, it's about not recognizing change. And so I think WWE's done a good job of trying to say we're we're in this new world, we understand this new world. But there are times when I feel like maybe you're chasing after the digital um, you know, Snapchat filter wingding yeah. when you really should be focused on does my core product engage people enough to want to watch their programming and pay watch the the finality of the programming and connect with these characters and spend merchandise and money and time to to invest in these people. Right. Well, I'm sure that there, there's obviously a team of there's a creative team headed by Vince McMahon that probably asks themselves that question every day. I think it's just a matter of the philosophy is quite wrong, but not wrong enough to hurt their business to the point where it's not profitable because it's quite profitable. It is. It is. It is. And profitability, you know, pleads complacency. So that's why I, I just get nervous. I get nervous. And, and to me, it's like so much of this is being built on this idea that India is magically going to pay a lot of money, more money for WWE, and that's why they're successful. Does that have anything to do with the core fundamentals for what makes WWE a success? No. Because to me, that's – And, and, you know, and that's as a like financial saying, analyst, it would take a lot more hours of research and learning for me to to critique the creative product, if that's what you're getting at, to create – to critique the creative product than it does for me to like just take this business and media background that I have and apply it to this business, this company, and make a stock target out of it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like it, movies, right, where we say, well, movies aren't very creative, but someone else will say, well, they made more money than ever. Well, that's because in China they're able to make this billion dollars they never could make before. But does that make them more aesthetically pleasing and connecting to the audience? Not necessarily. And ultimately, I do fear that like that degrades your ability to actually connect to your audience and ultimately uh, impedes your ability to be successful on the long term because you, you lose your ability to actually understand what what connects and resonates. And instead, you, you just chase this idea of it popped. So it works. And so, so like, you know, what's, what's, if anything, what's the long term scenario that, that you would warn against then? In some ways, you could say it might be the Jinder Mahal, which is we, we took an so, international market. It's, it's we the reality that we're already experiencing with WWE. <laughs> like, what's the yeah, worst case scenario? That, the worst case scenario, I think, is just the, the product being the quality, the unsatisfying quality that it is now. 
to me, the worst case scenario is always that your average viewer is a, a man in its late 40s. And yet you are not creating a new generation of viewers. And instead, you're just trying to sell. But that that the average viewer being 40, that's based on people who are watching on linear TV. And I don't I don't believe that that's like the average, the average age of the average WB fan, whatever reasonable definition we could come up to define who's a, who's a WB fan. I, I I don't know if I disagree with it so much. So I think I think we might differ on that. As a 37 year old man, I, uh, <laughs> I, my years of experience have brought me to a different place than you. But, but there's obviously the, the the younger people who are watching WB or who are WB fans who, who consume or interact with WB on a regular basis, they're much less likely to watch it on linear TV than older people. That's true. That's true. I will, I will give you that. But you could also say that some of the information that's come from WWE still suggests that their average fan is someone in their 40s and they have the access to all that consumer demographic information for their network that we would we would be hearing them tell us a different story i think the yeah. average age of the w network subscriber is like maybe in their 30s okay okay but i mean i think we're still arguing over 30s versus 40s here versus 50s I, I agree. As the TV grays, that's one reason why I think getting on a, a network, uh, a non non bundle network, is really interesting like for Fox. them. Like Fox, mm-hmm. um, I think that's one reason why it's interesting. I agree that digital saturation is going to be huge if they were on a Facebook or if they were on an Amazon or they were on a new ESPN digital. That would be huge for them. I, mean, they I kind just of don't are on see Facebook. it. Realistic. They get millions of, of views for a handful of their clips every week. On just on they Facebook. Do. And on YouTube, yeah. whatever that's it, worth. Exactly. I think to me, it's just that idea of saying, what is, what is it when you're consuming content in bite-sized pieces, but you don't consume the content? That's like, for you, you're not a Game of Thrones fan, right? No, never watched. But you recognize probably some Game of Thrones characters or mm. ideas, right? Because you, you've consumed me. <laughs> memes enough to understand that they exist. Perhaps. And and to me, there's a big difference between someone who consumes and is interested and invested in a product and someone who's con- aware of its existence. Sure. And the, I feel like – The invitation to engage deeply is lower when all I'm confronted with is like a single link, although there's like related links on the side and whatnot. But it's not the same as me sitting on a couch and being like, all right, here's this three-hour wrestling program that I'm maybe going to watch the whole thing of. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and also that I'm going to spend any money on. That you you would in no way spend money to go engage with the Game of Thrones thing just because you're familiar with it. Right. Well, I might subscribe. If I like Game of Thrones, I might subscribe to whatever OTT service it's on, HBO, right? Yeah. 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 But, but I think what happens is, like, there's there's younger people who are getting caught up with WWE through but are there that that's where i'm i'm challenging is 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 the what is driving that what what makes those people engaged what is are are they investing in getting those things right and maybe they are you know john cena is about to then, do then why, a why whole bunch of nickelodeon then why stuff and live events filled with older men and why why is it filled with i don't know when i go to w live events or when you look into the crowd or when they shoot families the crowd, and kids yeah I would argue it's because they've um, 
they they've devalued the experience to the point that the competition is irrelevant. It's like watching a rerun on television as opposed to first run programming. And the older fans have no interest in that sense of there's no sense of mystery. But they'll still watch it for free on TV. Or as part they'll of watch the new package. content that matters for free on television. So why don't they go to Raw and SmackDown and pay-per-views as much? Because even those, uh, I don't see a big population of the older male demographic that's reflected in their TV viewership demographics. Some of that is pricing that that I think they, they are creating an environment where the people that would like the premium tickets are not feeling that they can achieve the ticket status that they want. What I mean by that is that I, if I want to go to a WWE show, I want to sit on the floor, right? I want to be near the ring, but I don't want to spend $1,500. I'll spend 200. I'll spend 300. I don't want to spend 1500. And so I do feel like they might be in, in a situation here where they're not offering a premium opportunity to people at the right price. So all the but older that, men that, are, it, are in the cheaper seats or, or just not going. You know, I'm not going to spend like for me, I'm not going to spend 20 bucks and sit on the last row. I'd rather spend more money and get a good seat. That's what I always do, though. I sit in the last row, get the cheapest seat because <laughs> you're a young man, Brandon. And you're I'm, a young man. We talked about this. Cheap as can be. Well, I don't know. I'm 32. How, how young yeah. is young in, in, in this context? Everyone under 33. Oh, OK. <laughs> Let's talk this Needham uh, analysis right now. Berrios is going to appear at the 20th annual Needham Growth Conference on the 18th in New York City. Yeah. And um, Needham put out this big thing called Content Creators and Owners, the Future of Media and Epic Battle. And it, it has a whole lot of different information. It has some of those spending numbers that I quoted earlier. But um, has some analysis in here, which I think some people would snicker at, especially around um, iPods and, and about it, it. Needham at one point says, well, if Apple had priced all their songs for three dollars a piece, we estimate that they could have gotten ten billion dollars more on this and that not kind of under kind of misunderstanding the entire appeal of the ninety nine cent pricing that happened with music that made it such a successful adoption strategy. Um but uh, tell me some of your takeaways as you read here when there's a page here on WWE and uh, what, what what were some of the things that jumped out to you? And yes, this is Laura Martin and Dan Medina uh, from Needham. And I will always say Laura sounds – at least this analysis, she sounds a lot more cognizant and, and, and connected. Her WWE analysis in 2014 was a mess. But um, she's been covering uh, WWE for more than 20 years. So she she knows the company. She knows the people. Um, but I would argue that her conclusions in the past have been kind of all, all over the rails. But I think as a media analyst as a whole, she does know what she's talking about in some ways here. So what were some of your takeaways from this Needham page? Uh, Needham recommends that WWE is a good stock to invest in because it's successfully made the transition from OTT and that they own the wrestling superfan market globally, which I thought was an interesting phrase. And well, yeah, she can't say super surf because then it, it just literally shows you that George Barrios is controlling the puppet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, um, I think to probably most of our listeners, the wrestling super fan market means something different than it means to very different to uh, the financial analysts who cover WWE. Um, the super fan market, I think, to them, to 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 Needham and to WWE is like just. People who follow WWE pretty closely and, and anything above that, I think that's the super fan market to them. Whereas the super fan market to us, 
to me. Um, is PWG, Bola, fly-in yeah. guy, right? Super fan market it, to me is like people who I follow on Twitter and similar people. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, if we talk dollars, the the aggregate dollars of all those people, and then we think about the market cap of New Japan versus the market cap of WWE, it does say something about, you know, a percentage of WWE is a much bigger number yeah. than all that other stuff added together. Now, altogether, WWE does, what, 2 million in attendance a year? Yep, a little over that, yeah. Well, little 2 million. And so we could... If we, I've been meaning to do this for a while where we do that exercise where we try to add up all the attendances of all those other companies in the world over the time there, especially when you get Mexico in the picture of just how many, you know, like Dave Meltzer, Dave Meltzer's pointed out like, you know, was it 1982 in Texas or something did like 2 million people at a wrestling show, um, according to some economic study or however many events there were in the year. Yeah. yeah, and so just the idea that WWE in a year does two million seems like a lot until you realize that in a single state they were able to do this back in the eighties. I've, I've so, seen clippings from like these are the they would be like here are the number of attendees for multiple sports and wrestling being one of them, and it's you know the multiple millions well above two million. This would be, this would be like in the seventies or something. Yeah, yeah. So I I am kind of curious about you know when we say super fan, is there a larger percentage of people? that are fans of all this other stuff put together versus WWE. But we do know that on a revenue basis, if you're talking about share of dollar, you know, it's four to one or five to one or 10 to one for what WWE people are spending because WWE has monetized it so much more Com- compared to non WWE promotions. You're saying, yeah. Cause even if I take all those attendance in Mexico, that, that dollar gate pales in comparison to new Japan or WWE. Yeah. Is my point. So, um, but yes, they own, quote, the wrestling super fan market globally. And you could argue that they own the, they, they have such a demanding number one lead over everybody else. Yeah. And well, I think it, the thing that I, that I'm, that I'm keeping in mind, and then this is probably a, a reflection of coming off of Wrestle Kingdom is that there's a, there's a possible scenario or maybe a fantasy that, well, maybe New Japan will get more ground. Maybe New Japan eventually gets a TV deal and then, I think New Japan is super serving, if you will, the the wrestling audience far better in a, in a way that WWE is not and is unwilling to. I guess I'm just talking about the quality of the product. Yeah, but it's still not called New Japan at that point. I I don't see New Japan being number two in America exactly until it's it's more than you know until it's it's international wrestling company. You know, I, I do think until they have like a, a dedicated brand for the U.S. or something. Well, just or just I think I think just being called New Japan Pro Wrestling just makes it seem like it's too much of a regional company. And I don't think it could ever break into that next era of understanding and acknowledgement in in the U.S. You know, if it was Bullet Club Wrestling, I could even see that happening. You know, just when you think of the ubiquity of like the way Bullet Club exists outside of wrestling context. Yeah. Uh, you know, something like that. Just, just that idea of it. It's got to be a brand that's bigger. It's it, the way NWO or Austin 316. Well, like, they, I, I guess the some... larger point that I'm trying to get at is that WWE, and this is sort of why NXT has been successful, I think, too, is because WWE main roster programming doesn't satisfy wrestling fans in a certain way. And I think this is part of the reason why they were shocked that 
people who subscribe to the network actually want wrestling because I think there's something about Raw and SmackDown that doesn't satisfy a large portion, a significant portion at least, of their audience and who are drawn to things like New Japan or PWG or whatever indie promotion or whatever wrestling promotion in, in, in any country that you want, that, that they're getting out of those products that they're not getting out of WWE. Um, and, and I think as time goes on and as people have more and more access to information and various types of video or whatever... I think people are going to become more, or they're going to be able to become more and more aware of non-WWE products, and and maybe that causes some encroachment on WWE. This is just a scenario. No, no, I hear what you're saying, and I, I think but it's, what, a, it's a business what, opportunity that WWE has created by their own unwillingness to. You know, it's just Vince McMahon's philosophy of pro wrestling, which which is you know it has to be sports entertainment, and it can't have too much of a sports aspect to it, and the camera angle has to switch every point three seconds, and so on. One thing, though, that's intriguing is when you look at the spend and the OBITA on the network, one of the reasons that they've been able to get that OBITA up is because they've reduced their actual spend on the network in terms of new original programming. And there is this element to say that there's this strange kind of fight in between about we can put more original programming on the network, but that doesn't drive more subscribers. Yeah. It sometimes in, engages and, and pleases the people that like it more, but it doesn't bring in new fans. Yeah. And so it's always this give and take and this push and this pull between giving them more wrestling, like we talk about here, and giving them more stuff that we think will make this a more broad brand. And the acceptance of WWE in the last two to three years here that they are a niche product, like I've always said here, that they are the – they are not Netflix. They are the NFL videos of the world where they have to accept that it's for the small group of people that care about this. You can be the best in the world at that. But we're already seeing profit constraints uh, impact their ability for them to embrace the idea of, well, do we really want to go all in on wrestling? Yeah. I, it, because it's expensive. It's expensive to go all in on wrestling? It can be How for so? the new programming at times because it doesn't, it doesn't create incremental subscribers. It pleases the people that like it more and more. But it doesn't create the new incremental. What creates and so that what, what does create incremental new subscribers? They would love to know that. <laughs> That's one reason why I think this, the 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 discussion has tr- has switched so much from let's get the WWE network in China and India to let's make our TVs uh, programs get give us a get a bunch of money overseas. I, I guess it's it's my radical opinion that they could get in- incremental subscriber growth if they just booked the, the show better, which would help cultivate star power better, which would help them attract more people to their product to spend more time on it. Hey, I would love to see the tough enough of wrestling programming where instead of its competitors competing to become wrestlers, it's wrestling programs competing to become wrestling programs where you put, put forth four different ideas and you basically say at the end of the season, one of them is going to win and is going to continue on. And one of them is going to be our cruiserweight show that's an actual tool, you know, an actual cruiserweight show, not two five live. One of them is going to be our, our international tournament. One of them is going to be our, um, our old time Southern blood and guts wrestling show. And one of them is going to be our, Hoss uh, battle tournament, Hoss battle, or, or one of them is going to be our, our new founded wrestling, uh, creativity thing where it's going to be all kind of insider jargon and, and wacky Lucha skits. You know, it's going to be Lucha underground basically. You know, futuristic wrestling, and and you have them compete in whatever shows the most interest on the network. That's the one you you continue to invest in. They do, do pilots or a small series of pilots. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, the way Southpaw Wrestling got people excited as as much as it angered other people, I loved it because it was, to me, the idea of saying, let's give you something different than the way wrestling is for us and see if that engages you. Yeah. Um, Hopefully Michelle so Wilson super- is listening. Yeah. So uh, Needham says, WWE puts each piece of content on a single platform that pays the most view per hour. That's an easy way of putting it as... Uh, after the fact, we like to justify the way things are going. Yeah. That, that, and that's yes. such a, I think in some ways, such a smart strategy. And I think about, about that, like as, as a wrestler, like, yeah, you should like uh, try to get a, a variety of stuff on, on, on platforms. So don't post the same stuff on, on the same platforms, but post a variety of stuff on different stuff. And I think mean, I kind of half joked that like what? you could be posted the various bingo card. And I was like, Oh, we gotta, we gotta monetize this and, and put yeah. this, uh, this content maybe on the subscriber tier. I was going like to say, that. why Why are you thinking about this as a wrestler and not as a wrestling podcaster? There you go. Because that's exactly what we're struggling with all the time, which is how do you optimize our value as a podcast, as a patron, as a writing source where we have articles, and as a news aggregator where we have our notes from our shows, yeah. and as a as a resource ourselves, you know, as a, as a access to us. You know, should we be selling interviews with Chris and Brandon for one hour? Should we be selling, you know, uh, uh, creative art projects like Varios? Should we be selling um, uh, uh, exclusive content? And it's that is the key here is you want to put each content on a different platform. And I think what they've the the nut that they laminated Barrios bingos bingo cards. How about that? There's an idea. Yes. You know, one one uh, could one of our George Barrios send us a cease and desist for using his likeness, though. Uh, that's a good thing. My wife's in law school or about to take the bar. Right. Um, I think a parody would probably cover a lot of it. So I think we'd be, but I I think this, this, this narrative of we put different content in a different pillar. We don't just reuse the same content, which is something I heard George Barrios and Stephanie McMahon say this, this week by, by no means for the first time. Um, but like there, there's a lack of truth to that. You're, you're taking clips of Raw and SmackDown and putting them on YouTube and, and Facebook. And those are among your most viewed clips on those platforms, um, which, which is fine. And you should do that, but it's not exactly truthful to what you're saying. And you're taking that same content that you're putting on pay TV that you're also putting on Facebook and YouTube. And after 30 days, you're putting it on the network. So you're putting it on all three tiers, just at a, at a different rate at a different. Yeah. But I, I will say that. They are being smart in the sense of saying we can make money on YouTube off of a match that we showed on USA and we can make it twice and we make it a short clip on YouTube and we get money off of it and we get it on the USA Network TV rights. Mm -hmm. Now, the argument that I think is is kind of missing here is aren't you in some way beginning to cannibalize each tier by providing the same level of access to the point where people begin to exclude tiers, including your most profitable tier. Because so many people say, I can follow WWE without ever having to have a cable subscription because all I need is the network and YouTube. Yeah, that sounds like me. Yeah, and that's very dangerous, I think, because essentially that would work out great if network and YouTube were growing so exponentially in their revenue and their OBITA generation. But we know they're not. We're not going to see $50 million incremental year over year coming from YouTube. We're not going to see $50 million incremental OBITA coming from network. We're only going to see that coming from television. I think they're wise to, to get invested early and deeply in the, in the digital space, though, because that could be a, an area that does produce tens of millions of OEBDA in the future. Not within the next five years, maybe. 
but after that possibly. And they need to get their roots deep there so that they can take advantage of that if that day comes. I, I do think that because what they're playing a little bit here is a shell investment game of who's going to give us the most money and tie themselves down for several years to it. They need to make sure that they focused very heavily on making sure that that television content seems like the premium investment for everyone involved in the next two years here. And that might mean you have to sacrifice a little bit on on digital because you should not be – if if you're about to go you, – <laughs> You know, I say this, but this is the same company that launched the network right before they did their domestic deal. So this is the same company that did shoot themselves in the foot right before they went into the the negotiations there. So I do I think they're actually going to pull back on digital in any way? No, because they haven't shown that self restraint in the past. And then the point that I think is made in this Needham uh, analysis that uh, they think of, or, or or that in actuality it, it functions this way that that. All this digital and social stuff for WB serves as a marketing tool so that the justification would be that even if it's not that profitable, which it's not, it's still getting uh, WB's content and stars out there, which which um, makes sense to me in that people are putting their eyes here. Where are people spending their time? They're spending less and less time, whether WB exists or not, they're spending less and less time watching TV and more time looking at their mobile devices. So if WWE doesn't exist, have a strong presence in, in, on a mobile device, you're passing up an opportunity to get your stars over and your brand over. I, I always, though, challenge the idea that everything is all or nothing because, you know, when you go back to the social media is bullshit type theorem, there is a certain element where you can start to say everything I do is good for my brand I am always improving the halo effect of my brand, but there has to be trade-offs and there has to be KPIs and there has to be goals. And so at a certain point, no, you are better spending your time on Twitter than you are on Instagram or vice versa. And we, we have to make sure that, you know, there's not this – there's always this rationale that somehow everything more is always better when in fact a lot of times more costs money and maybe you were better off spending it even on a traditional print ad campaign, which isn't as sexy but is much more effective. I think the history of technology tells us that new media, eventually more and more people will put their attention in new media as time goes on. I don't think the internet's going away. I don't think social media is going away. If anything, it's the opposite. So they need but to. But I would argue the difference is you're investing in tout when you should invest in Twitter. Right. You you got it. You get. You have to pivot with the times, and you also have to cut off limits because you know they they bring up the point here. WWE gets twelve cents an hour globally from pay TV, and they get one cent per view for their nineteen billion views. That's twenty million dollars. Yeah, which which I thought million. was an apples to oranges comparison, and I did some math, which doesn't make it much better. But it's three cents per hour versus twelve. According cents. to you. Yeah. Well, is because that is that, is that math wrong? Well, um, no one knows what we're talking about now. So you're saying twenty million dollars divided by six hundred and twenty million hours? Yeah, which is like a, a, I think a safe estimate of what they're going to end up. I'm assuming that they're going to uh, report a certain number for Q4. But they said views, and you're saying hours, right? So you're, you're saying what's a view? A view to an hour is not the same thing. No, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, but I think they're also making the point that one area – and this goes back to my argument, which is get your pay TV deal right is where they're putting all their eggs in their basket because it's worth 12 times as much as, as the digital space. So even if all your money from YouTube doubles tomorrow, triples tomorrow, quadruples tomorrow, you're still 
far cry from what pay TV is going to do. Plus you're a far cry from the one year increment that pay TV is going to do. Plus pay TV is giving you a five year guaranteed deal. But what does, so, what does get your pay TV deal right mean though? Does that mean just negotiate it well, or does that mean like make the booking better on TV? Well, I think there's two versions of that. I think one would say that a lot of it would have to do with don't go to India and tell them, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to, get Facebook right now to give me a bunch of money for the digital rights. Instead, you go to India, Sony 10 and say, you are the most important country in the world for us to make sure that we do this right and that we are going to invest with you on localization and we're going to give you a 10% cut on the network and all this other stuff, you know, whatever it is to make that deal so that they fork over $70 million next year. Getting a $70 million deal out of India is enormous. That's bigger than 99% of the other things they're going to try to do this year. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that sometimes their idea of like, we're going to do this with Jinder Mahal, I almost would argue that might even be counterproductive because if your domestic audience is 75% of your your network subscribers and represents still, I don't know, maybe 60% of your television rights fees, you don't want to mess up that marketplace. And so sometimes I think conflating the two has been really goofy in their mind. And in the end, if they get $70 million deal from India, they're probably going to say that that Jinder Mahal experiment was a huge success. And I think at best it was a middling thumbs in the middle. I agree. But I think they think that Jinder Mahal, we, I think they think even if Jinder Mahal's, even if they sat back in May, 2017 and said, you know, this Jinder Mahal thing might be a complete failure. But it's not going to hurt us. I think they 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 think they're kind of they can almost do anything. The booking, to an extent, doesn't really matter. It's not like it's not like we saw their business crash <coughs> because of Jinder Mahal. But um, we I have know a seen lot live of people events to, remain remain anemic. We've seen what remain anemic? Live events. Is that because of Jinder Mahal though? I know a lot of no, people but are projecting it's not, that. It's not helped but, by him either, though. No, it's not. What what about uh, let's let's flip gears here just for a second. What about the comment here, which I really enjoyed in the statement? It said another wrestling company cannot compete purely through Avod. Yeah. What did you think of that 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 sentence? Because I think that's a good point, which is basically as much love as we have for new media, and you have, of course, much more than I do. It is still a pay TV world that a traditional television deal is going to be kind of your make or break status. I'm, I'm not sure and, that I'm all that more optimistic than than you are about new media i just uh i don't know i'm more excited about it i don't know but <laughs> what, what, do you what's agree the what's the question well the, the basically the idea is that the key to break here is still pay tv that it, yes. you that in that to become a, a true number two you would have to be a serious you'd have to get on tv player. they don't say that but it seems like well that's a conclusion that you could draw from reading it um, I'm sure there's a, a version of how you do the investment profile where you say basically the barriers to entry for your competitors. Right. Because the whole idea is you're you're trying to say why is why are they so good at what they do that no one else can just start up tomorrow and do it. And Dave gives an example in The Observer saying that in 2004, um, Ted Turner met with uh, uh, Crockett and somebody else. And you're talking about the Jim uh, Barnett story. This would be like this is after WCW no, went down. No, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jim Bar- I don't think it was Jim Barnett, though. I thought it was Bill Shaw and um, uh, Ted Turner and Crockett, I thought it said. Or is it Jim Barnett? I think it's Jim Barnett. I think uh, this I is post-WCW was... going under. I don't yeah, know. it was 2004 was the idea. Okay. Uh, let, me, let me pull up the actual uh, newsletter. Let's, I'll just read it verbatim. We'll do it live. Okay. Um, 
but uh, basically saying how much would it cost? Yep, Ted Turner, Bill Shaw, and a guy named Jim Barnett. <laughs> You're right. So it was not a uh, not not Crockett, which makes far more sense. I could not understand why Crockett would be involved in this. Okay, uh, Ted Turner, Bill Shaw, and Jim Barnett, 2004, at a meeting saying Ted Turner's non-compete against WWE as part of buying those WCW assets had ended. And basically, they came up with a number saying it would cost maybe $50 million in startup costs and losses to get it off the ground. And that was way different than in 1988 buying a JCP and, and you know, losing $9 million. Um, $50 million actually doesn't sound like that much to me anymore. You know, maybe it's this new era of startups that it's just – fifty million in 2004. Yeah, that's true. That would be a lot more now. But, but and, just and this new be, era and not of just startups inflation, that consume, But, like, would it be more expensive because of – some other realities of the industry. Well, I, I think 50 million in 2004, you know, it is a much lower number in some ways now because I think WWE would be willing to spend and leverage a lot more to stop someone else from making that big investment. And the same time, same time, 2004, compare the TV rights fees that were being generated and the model that people used at that time to today's model. There is a much better model now in terms of the monetization opportunity for people in pro wrestling because of these giant TV rights fees that are being paid out and because of these direct uh, – these OTT services that – you know, like we say here, if, if the billions of dollars being spent by the Netflix of the world – and again, they're shooting a lot of times for one in tens for what's going to be success. Yeah. And so – it doesn't sound so outside of the box to think about $50 million going into some startup that is going to compete with an industry like that. But the point here being made is that WWE would not be able to compete against somebody else who just shows himself up on YouTube. And the amount of money that WWE is making on YouTube would probably still not, you know, like we said, it's what, $20 million or $30 million or whatever that digital media number is that That's I said earlier. The profit is even lower than that. It's almost nothing. Exactly. And, and so, you know, digital media as a whole is the $30 million. In, is probably this year, maybe a little bit more than thirty million, and the profit on that digital media thirty million was maybe six million, so one fifth, and or Obada, I'll say Obada, not profit, but um, Obada on that was only six million, and so it would be tough for another company to just come along and say, hey, I'm going to get a bunch of money from YouTube. Well, you know what? WWE is enormous, and they can barely make twenty, thirty million on there. You think they're going to make fifty million on YouTube, paying anybody else? So you'd have to take some hits. But I do think that we're in an environment where if someone had that money and that capital and that interest, you could Bellator this game. You know, this is a this is a, a world where you could try and wedge yourself onto a pay TV network situation. And so if Fox ever did really, really, you know, Fox didn't get WWE and they lost UFC, would they in fact try to go launch a new network? Well, I feel like I mean, this is kind of wrestling company. This is kind of the vision of the current NWA, right? Is the current NWA or even Lucha Underground or, or you know, to a much lesser extent, TNA, yeah. you know, well, they all least, want to be that other thing. Well, at least Impact and Lucha Underground have a TV deal. But I think NWA's vision is to build a brand via social media and build it and build it and build it until there's there's somewhere to sell it. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying sell the company, but sell a TV rights deal or sell a digital media rights deal. I think that's their, their idea. I, I do wonder a lot about just what's the um what's the ability for wrestling to have a, a greater you know kind of interest in this world 
is it is wrestling becoming more like the rest of media or is wrestling going to always remain as this thing that people are pro wrestling fans or have we reached that point where 10 years by itself wwe is is what wrestling is for so many people in the world what do you, what do you mean is he, are you saying like it, it's we've we've passed the point of no return where anyone could ever compete with wwe again is that what you're saying no i'm just wondering you know what what is that what what is that other that number two company built on that makes them wedgeable enough that is going to stick with people uh, because we know it's not going to be stars from the last generation. Yeah. Right. At least I, you feel that, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's the same argument people made in the nineties about, you know, how could a star from the eighties be the guy that we're going to build a company on? And yet that works. So For a few years. the problem was in the two thousands, we tried to build from those same stars from the nineties who were the stars from the eighties. And that, that really didn't work. So, I mean, I think we, we've done a good job of kind of bringing to that next level. And I think things like Lucha Underground were an interesting experiment to say, what if we took the edginess of of directions of soap operas and this and that and brought them into wrestling? Wouldn't that resound with people and challenging, right? It's funny to see someone just sent me the Mark Cuban article the other day. Again, you know, somebody has nothing to do with wrestling because they knew, and they're just like, Mark Cuban's getting into wrestling. And so, you know, you could almost see it being the Mark Cuban of the world with the New Japan kind of breakthrough of being the guy who would want to wedge it in. But um, uh, it's clear that WWE, I think, has the advantage in the pay TV ecosystem that they've leveraged the right contacts and people to make this a big deal. And And I always say I think that because WWE is the major league and has been the one and only major league for – since 2001, I guess, um, that it being the major league makes it so that there's kind of a hard ceiling for how far they can go or it makes it harder for them to damage their business with, with creative, I guess, because nobody perceives any other promotion as really having that high profile or, or I don't know, being that major league or being the NFL of football or being the major league baseball of baseball or the NBA of basketball. You know, there's nobody else that comes close to that, to, to like cultural relevance, I guess. New Japan is great, and then the product is, is often very good, but it's it's not that global number one league. And it's it's a star-driven business. You know, The Rock gets hot. Austin gets hot. It transcends the the vehicle that they're in to be the star. And there is seen as the only thing close to that on a – international basis where you could say okay you have cena and you know he's off there he's gonna do shows with nickelodeon he's doing kids choice awards he's doing teenage mutant ninja turtles he's doing a new game show called keep it spotless he's he's out there and he's doing all this stuff but um it's about you know transcending the idea of wrestling itself and that's what gets super super duper hot is then people want to see that star even more than wrestling itself very rarely has wrestling itself really been the draw it's usually been about seeing that certain star or character. Yeah, and this is way off topic, but I, I've always felt like, to me and my wrestling friends, Stone Cold Steve Austin was the biggest star in the late '90s or whatever. But eventually, the Rock became, and I'm, I'm saying like, let's let's say we're talking in 2002 here, or 2003 or something like that. Rock was a bigger name to the masses even then, I think, than than Austin ever was, for whatever reason. To me, it's always kind of been like Austin was like Connor and Rock was like a movie star mm-hmm. or or like like George Clooney or something where it's like 
One of them was an athlete that you kind of were were kind of in awe of. Mm-hmm. Austin as his charisma and all that. Because I always thought of him a lot more as a wrestler, as a tough guy, as you know all those things that he was portraying. Versus The Rock was a comedic figure. He was funny. Yeah. He was interesting. He was entertaining. He wasn't really that same era of I'm afraid The Rock is going to beat me up. Yeah, it was, it was and, more and, like I think The Rock came up with a lot of funny lines that people could repeat jokingly in conversations. Not that Austin didn't do that, but Rock did way more, and they were more funny than, well. Well, you felt like The Rock was a you, – you felt like like Austin was Austin. Like you felt like you were seeing who Steve Austin was, even though he was a character, but you felt like it was him. The Rock, you felt like it was a charismatic, entertaining, over bigger-than-life person. The most luxury man in history of sports entertainment. Yeah, but I mean, it was—I don't know—it was a very different, different element there. And so, yeah, I think one was the biggest wrestler, and one was the biggest entertainer. Yeah, you know, like at no point did I ever feel like the Austin was going to be an entertainer in the world of entertainment. And at all points, did I feel like Rock was holding his own as a person who created entertainment quality, just the same way a TV star or a movie star did, or a comedian. Yeah. All right, we're gonna take a uh, two-minute break. Sure. One of the things that shocked even us when we launched the network is how much in-ring content people were watching. They already have five hours live of Raw and SmackDown every, every week. Well, those hardcore fans wanted more live. So you've seen the, United, the UK Championship. We've never done that before. It's a local championship, non-WWE talent that we produce in the UK. Did great on the network. The May Young Classic, similar. Find the next uh, batch of female WWE stars. We created a series on the network, 205 Live, for cruiserweights, under 205-pound athletes. Very different than what you would see on Raw and SmackDown. We're back, everybody. Russell Nomics Radio, your hosts, Christopher Mookie-Gonna-Harrington, Brandon Howard Thurston. Just a reminder that Russell Nomics Radio is always brought to you in the year of our Lord, 2018, by Keeps. That's right, keeps.com slash we. What is Keeps? Well, Keeps is the easiest way to keep your hair. It offers two FDA-approved hair loss products clinically proven to help keep the hair you have. You can sign up in less than five minutes, and Keeps is entirely online and costs anywhere from maybe $10 to $35 a month. That's less than a dollar a day for a lot of people on average. That's half of what you normally pay at a pharmacy. Keeps is a proud sponsor of WrestleNomics Radio, and we are excited to have them on this year. Again, keeps.com. You'll be hearing more and more about them throughout this year here. But we just want to remind you, that's what WrestleNomics Radio is here to do for you. And if you want to support WrestleNomics Radio and keep the hair that you have, do we have a discount code, coupon code yet? or is that? That's right. If you go to keeps.com slash WE, you'll get your first month free. So that's an enormous value right there. And uh, if that's your issue, I think it's a perfect solution for you. All right. Let's talk New Japan. I got raked over the coals. Did you? By by uh, some of our fans here for uh, I was quote last week was quote the week that Mookie turned heel. Oh, that's right. Because he didn't uh, like Omega Jericho very much, or as much as didn't like Omega Jericho and admitted to being a pirate. Yeah. Which which prompted me to do a YouTube poll of do you view or not a YouTube poll a Twitter poll do you view watching wrestling content on YouTube as piracy and i wasn't saying through official new japan channels i was talking full matches what did you vote in that do you view that as i did not even, not even aware of this poll oh what would you have voted on uh yes it's piracy hmm. 
If 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 intellectual property is a real thing, then absolutely. Why? How is it not? You're taking someone else's intellectual property and you're that they're trying to monetize and you're giving it away for free. I just thought new media brand in here would say in this ecosystem today, you know, this is giving exposure to this brand and, and ultimately it, it, it gives a halo effect and yada yada yada. This new is great for I think it's New Japan's right to to decide what they're gonna do with it. And for somebody else to make that decision for them is piracy. I certainly said I think it's completely wrong for people to profit off of New Japan's IP by uploading it and then running ads against it or other things so that they get revenue for that content owner. Now, WWE had that interesting situation where I believe Bix showed that, in fact, even if you upload WWE content and you run an ad against it, instead of that content value going to you, it actually is going to WWE. So in some ways, it's kind of funny when you talk about piracy there because it's actually benefiting the other company for you to give that exposure through your means. Right. But um, And And I guess you can make the argument, I think is what you're kind of getting at, is like, well, maybe – Maybe part of the reason why New Japan has become as popular as it's become with Western fans is because people are able to sample it through these apparently illegitimate means. So I think there's something there. Um, because I know when I go to Brandon Howard Thurston's video collection of VHS tapes, I will see officially licensed New Japan product, which has been imported overseas from All Japan, from New Japan, from DDT, and converted from PAL into to, uh, NTSC. Uh, using a series of players, correct? Right, and and that that was piracy too, but there, there at least at that time, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not like saying that it was like better or worse than what's going on now, but like there wasn't an alternative to uh, short of going to Japan, there wasn't an alternative to give these companies money through legitimate means. So I I, I have become a New Japan World subscriber. Um, I was shamed into it for for uh, uh, talking about these matches on YouTube. I did not go and torrent any matches when I, I was having trouble finding them. I was looking for them just on YouTube. Um, but I did go and, and become a 999 yen subscriber. And uh, so I do have New Japan access. And I was just watching Jericho fighting with Naito uh, right before we went on air here from the New Year's Dash show. Uh, kind of the amusing Naito doing that lay down pose, you know, come get me, which I was very amused by. And uh, hopefully looking forward to seeing some Fantastic Mania stuff coming up in the next few weeks here. Uh-huh. You're, you're going to um, watch the CML Fantastic Mania? A little bit of it. I'll, I'll probably <laughs> seek out at least one day's worth, you know, uh, somewhere in the, the path here. Because I, I love I love that kind of mix of high-flying Japanese wrestling. So I think it's kind of fun when that happens every year. But it, it's intriguing to me because we're going to New Japan. We're talking New Japan. Um and this week's Observer has a lot of, you know, follow up about New Japan, and uh, it prompted the article from you that you wrote, and uh, Dave's Dave's articles about things where, you know, in the Observer, Dave wrote Okada versus Naito was the real main event for Japan, while Omega versus Jericho was the real main event for the rest of the world. In the past, the later moniker would have been nice, but would have meant nothing since Wrestle Kingdom has been a Japanese event. But the world has gotten smaller between YouTube, social media, the internet, streaming services, and New Japan getting U.S. television. What is notable that outside of Japan, the U.S. was the number six market in terms of per capita interest. I believe he's talking Google searches here, trailing the U.K., Ireland, Puerto Rico, Australia, and Canada. 
Canada being five was a surprise since Winnipeg being where Jericho grew up and where Omega lives, Canada would have been expected to be number one. And uh, at least that gave me some ver- um, some validation there when my uh, rant about, you know, nobody nobody cares about the Winnipeg storyline. Not even that, people from Winnipeg. Yes, as as a couple of people on, on Twitter mentioned, is that it was not getting Winnipeg press. Yeah. And I think it's it's a good example of it, it's different than sports teams. And to, where to be you clear, like, really... what, I, I guess I missed this. What was the stress being put on Winnipeg? I know they're both from Winnipeg, but like, what did they do? Well, the and Don, Call it, uh, Don Callis, yeah. just it, part, of, part of the entire gimmick to start it all off was, you know, the best wrestler in the world. Hey, you're not even the best wrestler in Winnipeg, uh, yeah. you know, well, kind of comment. It's, it's just a convenient, smart comment it, to make. I don't mean smart, like it, super intelligent, but like a smarting off comment to make. And that works for a wrestling promo. It it is. I think it was more of one of these cases where it was something that Callis said that was bugging me and it was being played as if it meant something bigger. And I think it was one of these examples where uh, myopically it was not – I think it disconnect. It wasn't connecting the way that I think some of these people thought it was. And to me it just seemed like a strange thing to focus on. Um, but it, it speaks to too that in Canada it was not played up as two Canadians are headlining the Japanese wrestling event. It was played up as two foreigners are headlining it. Yeah. And one of them is a former WWE superstar. One of them is a current New Japan superstar who at one time was a developmental wrestler for WWE. Yeah. And, you know, they've gone in different directions and, and all that. And it, I just thought it was really intriguing there. And there's a lot to be said about, you know, what was the average ticket price? I think Dave figured that it was a, what, $3.1 million gate? He just sort of mentions it as a, I think, as a speculation. But he... he... He kind of speculates that that there was a, maybe a ninety dollar average ticket price. He mentions in passing, so I figure, all right, let's say that's true. Multiply ninety dollars for an average ticket price times when New Japan says the paid attendance about thirty five thousand. That means about a three million dollar gate. Yeah, three point one five million, and then forty bucks ahead would be something like one point four million, maybe more in merch sales because yeah. uh, even if you don't pay for a ticket, there's a lot more likelihood that you will still pay, pay for some merchandise if you bother going to the event. Right. Now, $40 a head is a lot for merch. I mean, you know, when you, you go back to WWE and their average How does that compare like, to WrestleMania? Hmm. Because they do... That's they, a good question. They have, they do they have release reported some information that, like that. how much yeah. venue merch was sold just at WrestleMania. I think they would... Have they given the number just for WrestleMania or for the entire weekend? I don't That's know. true. We, we would have to like bust out 10 cues to look into that or maybe just the press release. Yeah. I'm trying to see if I can find it really quickly here. I'm coming across a Forbes article here um, saying that they had generated 3.7 million in merchandising revenue for WrestleMania 33. Hmm. So uh, I don't know if that says exactly what the per capita would be, uh, you know, assuming 75,000 fans, on 3.7 million and again that that's a little bit off because like you say it's probably the whole weekend where you're including you know access and whatnot but let's just pretend it's not that'd be 49 dollars a head so 40 dollars a head that's probably a realistic number i think the all-time record um realistically goes to something like um uh the tokyo egg dome shows for uh the, the women's dream slam hmm. where it's like 120 bucks a head or something it's like a big big egg, big egg universe which is in 94 yes. the dream slams were i believe in yokohama or you know in 93 see see what happens when i begin to conflate things well just because anyway, yeah, we're gonna have called out yeah. well no no you're right they're two different shows they're two different shows you, but you know one of those be listeners shows. yelling at their podcast 
or whatever. Yes, because they appreciate my Japanese pronunciation, which is already perfect. So uh, at times they're just enthralled by what I'm saying. But so here, 40 bucks a head, uh, realistic, definitely realistic, especially in a, in a merch heavy marketplace. You know, one of the things they always talk about is in, you know, how Japan has not adopted a lot of streaming services, but they love physical merchandise. And so like uh, CD sales are still enormous really? in Japan. Oh, yeah, yeah, e- enormous, like 75% of the marketplace there hmm. for, like, music sales, I believe. Um, and, again, part of it is because y- you do have connections to different cultural things. So, like, you know, the super girl groups and guy groups and all that sort of stuff, there's a big emphasis on buying the physical merchandise around those groups to support them. That's interesting. And sometimes then they are connected to ticket sales and whatnot. Like, you can get better ability for you to actually get tickets to see events. So and this it, would probably be a good time for me to put the, the call out. I, I've, I've been asking some people who I know are either live in Japan or are very familiar with Japan or Japanese wrestling to help me understand how the Japanese consumer perceives, for example, an OTT product and help me understand, like, why, why is the Japanese media uh, world the way it is and, and why are they maybe not so willing to buy an OTT service? Help me understand, like why there why cable isn't as popular in japan or satellite tv isn't as popular i've heard there's something to do with the zoning laws in japan because of the zoning laws it's hard for them to distribute the the bundles or something like that um just because we know like ngpw worlds got under 100,000 subscribers uh which is far short of the, the goal that they expected and we know things like netflix aren't doing as well or hulu not doing as well in japan i think so yeah, I, I, so you're asking if people are are media experts about Japan and would like to reach out to you and just kind of explain to you more about what's happening, yeah. they should email wrestlenomics at gmail dot com. They should contact you on Twitter and you're at Brandon Thurston. Exactly. Or you can either, yeah email me at wrestlenomics at gmail dot com, Brandon at flightful dot com. Either of those will get get to me. Um, and I, I guess the the most relevant issue is with New Japan World. My big grievances. If you want to appeal to, I we can, maybe we should hold off on this, but to be brief, why aren't they on more platforms? I know the, a lot of the platforms aren't as popular in Japan, but if they want to have a global vision and appeal to a global consumer, it would, it would behoove them, it seems to me, to get on these additional platforms, which, which they are not on. But we'll probably get into that more in a minute. Well, it's a little bit like WW Network. WW Network is 75% domestic, 25% international. The question is, when you're looking for your next, say, half million viewers subscribers do you get them internationally or domestically or do you go for 50 50 and that's a big question mark is is to say that changes how you invest right localization is far more important if you want to do an international model than say if you're just focused on domestic um content is going to be way different uh uh, strategy in terms of what stars you sign and what what stars you feature you know if you're going to do a uk specific promotion that's going to drive sales in the UK, but that's a very specific content-driven uh, strategy. So it will be very intriguing to see kind of which direction WWE goes in. And same with New Japan. New Japan seeing this big swell in subs. And one thing I would like always to point out is even before Omega and Okada decided that they were going to – I'm sorry, Omega and, and Jericho did this thing, the New Japan show was going to get more subs. 
Yeah. And and that, regardless of Jericho we, and, and Omega, exactly. Just the same way WWE Network is going to get more subs from January to March, yeah. regardless of what they do. And and, and I would argue all, that Wrestle Kingdom 11 Omega Okada that hype was a significant event for them business wise, at least in terms of the Western fan and the Western fans' perception of New Japan Pro Wrestling. And I think regardless of whether Chris Jericho was going to be on Wrestle Kingdom 12, subs would have been up. They wouldn't have been up to the degree that they are up, which is about ninety eight thousand. Ninety nine thousand seven hundred eighty four as of the afternoon. Not incremental. That's like thirty thousand incremental, right? From sixty thousand, which was what what we heard it was right after Wrestle Kingdom last year. I think that that number would have been up to who knows seventy thousand, ninety thousand. But I think Jericho put some extra steam on that for sure. Yeah, which is is the biggest question there. Where Dave says, okay, so thirty thousand gain this year. How many fans? I'm sorry. No, he's talking attendance here. So he's saying they were going to do 30,000 in attendance this year. How much did they, they did total 35 paid. How much of that should I say is credit to Jericho and Omega? And he said, I would credit maybe 5,000 of the 35,000. I think that's a little much. I think it's impossible to ever break down a single event and then characterize it by the sum of the stars and then say it, it was, the value of this person, but not this person. Um, you, you're just, you know, you can do it through kind of discrete e- economics and then come up with numbers, but it doesn't mean those numbers are real. It just means that those numbers are mathematically um, exist in this magical world you've created. So, you, you know, it, it is it is tough because I've seen Paul Paul Fontaine do it a bunch with MMA where he'll take, you know, the top three draws and then say, okay, I'm going to take all the buys and I'm going to allocate them according to the top three main events. And I've done it with WWE events and whatnot. And it's a fun exercise. It's a it's an interesting experiment. But ultimately, it just gets down to gut. And half the time what happens is you do it and you find that Billy Gunn is the biggest draw in the company. And then you go and you change your methodology until you're happy. Yeah. Or you go through and you say, oh, I can't figure out a way to make Jericho worth a whole bunch of people. So my gut tells me blank. Now, it sounds like I'm still bearing Jericho and I'm still bearing the match. Let me let me let me go back on this. I think a lot of people thought I buried the match. I did not bury the You the, said it was the, a good match. I said it was a good match. In fact, I I will even go closer to a great match on it. I do not think it's a five-star match. I absolutely vehemently Are you, disagree are you with retroactively that. changing your star rating? No. Oh, no. Okay. I was saying I I watched the Jericho Omega match. Then I watched the Cody Obushi match, and then I watched the Juniors four way in that order. In that order, and I thought each one of those matches was better than the match before. So if the Jericho Omega match was four stars, then the the Jericho Obushi match was four and a half stars, and the four way uh, cruiserweight fest was four and a quarter, or four and three quarter stars, or whatever it was. And ultimately, Dave gave four and a quarter to. Cody and Abushi. He gave the uh, the Flying Fest four and three quarters, and he gave Jericho Omega five stars. Jericho Omega was by far the winner of match of the day, match of the uh, night show yeah. on the on the voting that was done both on the Observer, but also in the voting that was done in Japan. I don't know if you saw that tweet. I did not see that. Where, where is yeah. that from? Um, somebody had some web Japanese website like press conference thing. And maybe it was even a new Japan press conference or something where it had the names of all the matches 
in Japanese, and then it had the percentage for the voting, and it, it showed that I, I'm pretty sure it showed that the uh, the Omega the uh, Omega Jericho match was the top rated one for the night. Okay. So it was it was one of those where I was shocked. I would have easily expected the Japanese press to go with the the Naito Okada, um, but it says something that you know this many people think it's right. So I'm in the minority. I, I completely accept that. I don't think I, I'm wrong. But I also think that it's it's subjective, right? And I think that if you put the whole build together of what Chris Jericho did, was it a five star presentation? Much in the same way was the the Money in the Bank match with John Cena and CM Punk five stars, not because of the one match, but because of the entire build. Yes. So I can understand the appeal of saying it's five stars because of the build, the the picture. And did it culminate at the biggest event of the year in the biggest place on the world to do it? Yeah. So to me, it's also about your five-star matches should be happening at your biggest events of the year. If they're happening at PWG in a corner where very, very few people are seeing it, it's harder for me to get behind that. Because, yeah, you might have done the perfect match for 150 people, but I don't know if that's really the same as putting in the same league as a match that you have to sell to 30,000 people. I think for me as a fan, as as time has gone on here and I've gotten older, I parachuting in, as Joe would say, like into a match and just watching this match, having not followed a promotion, I get less and less impressed when when I do that. Because I think I start to appreciate or starts to resonate more and more with me, the context and what's the context of this match and what's the wider history of it. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what the point is of what I'm saying here. But like, well, I, I think I, the I wider guess, history to me is the Okada is the the Omega story of him being at the dome and and just the performances he's putting on and trying to prove himself worthy in this promotion. That's the story I'm seeing. That's why I was so confused by the Jericho story is that it's so strange for him to come in as this heel and fighting them there. It feels so much more natural to do the Jericho versus a Japanese star yeah. storyline. I, I guess the Jericho and Omega match was more spectacular. They did more crazy stuff. And I'm not even sure I would make an argument that the that the Knights of Okada match was better. Um, I'm, I'm fine with – sure, maybe maybe the Jericho Omega match was better. I don't know. But like I said, I, I, I care less and less about like the isolated bell-to-bell match quality of a match. And I, and I care more about like what, what the whole match, what the match means in the wider context of, of, uh, of the story of these two wrestlers, for example. Yeah. And, and so, so to that point, I, I, think, I think some people to, felt sorry, like I so buried for, this so I think, I think, I think what, what makes, what makes matches great and what makes matches resonate emotionally is is the bell to bell is just one part of that and and what helps resonate with with an audience emotionally is what happens what happened everything that happened leading up to that match everything that that these wrestlers mean to me as a viewer and then seeing those two wrestlers do whatever art it is that they're going to do in, in the match so like just the the disemboweled match alone doesn't really mean that much to me and i think this is manifesting things like uh, I, for example, I hear other people say this, that when you watch, say, All Japan in the 90s, which is my personal favorite, right, there, the, 
when you just watch a given match, say say this oh this highly praised match, and I, I don't I don't I know nothing about this promotion, but I know this this is a five star match, and oh so I sit down and watch it, and maybe it doesn't impress me that much. But maybe after I get really into a given promotion, and I get to know everybody really well, and I get to understand the dynamic and the, and the subculture of the promotion, then you sit down and watch that same match again, maybe a year later, and you're like. Oh, why didn't I appreciate this when I first sat down and watched it? Is because I didn't have, I hadn't developed yet the emotional investment in everything that was going on here. So anyway. Oh, I definitely felt that way. Um, famously, I was loaned to tape by David Ditch, who people that are um, uh, big Japanese tape traders yeah. or will, will probably know. Yeah. Ditch and I went to college together. Did you really? Know that? No. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know everybody, man. Wow. I'm I'm an important guy. No, Ditch and I went to college together. We had no idea about each other. We had absolutely no oh. like uh we, we were not friends. We were not we were in a couple of economics classes together. And at some point we both realized we were like both posting on I think Death Valley Driver or something. And so we, we started talking. And so Ditch loaned me um a Masawa Kawada. I'm sorry, Masawa Kobayashi. Kobashi. Um Kobashi. Yeah, look at me. Um, match and I hated it. I really did not enjoy it at all. Which one? And uh, one of the famous ones, <laughs> one of the five star ones. And I did not like it. And and it was one of these things where I struggled for a very long time about like you know why does everyone love this and it does not resonate with me. And so it's funny that you say you know you talk about the the coming to it and feeling like you appreciate it more and more uh, once you understand these characters because I, I think it's that's kind of the element i landed on which was i it's not for me it's not my marketplace it's not my understanding of these characters it's me dropping into episode 40 of game of thrones without seeing the first 39 and so it doesn't have a resonation for me and i usually prefer stuff that i can just consume and i can get and i do feel like you know you watch andre the giant versus stan hansen i i bring that one up all the time but uh you'll get it you know right off the bat you get that match or when I first saw Shinjinero Otani versus Ultimo Dragon, it blew me away. I just got it. I was into it. It made sense. So, you know, there's stuff that, like, will resonate with you uh, off the bat. But I think yeah. there are more nuanced things, too. And to me, it's just that it, it's tough to give a star rating to that. I, I challenge sometimes whether or not I don't fully appreciate Omega versus uh, Jericho, that there's some kind of history that I'm, like, not getting because I, I do feel like I saw a lot of it. I agree. Their outside of the match stuff was tremendous. I kept thinking when you were telling your story there of Hogan Rock. You know, you want to talk about an example of a match that never in itself, that match. The, ma the match is not incredible. Yeah. But the build to the match and the environment of the match and everything, that's what makes it incredible and it makes it work. Mm -hmm. And it, to me, it's it's that where it's to say the the, the value of it. And we, we ran into this all the time when we were doing DVDVR rankings of – are you ranking the match for the best match or are you ranking the angle for the entire thing? Because when you watch the Tupelo concession stand brawl or something like that, it's not about the match. It's about the post angle or all the other kind of fire, you know, that you'll see all the time happening with wrestling. So yeah. it's a continuous question. And, and I think you can get into wider meta conversations like what what's what's the thing that we should value here should or should we just be valuing the bell to bell and if so why and or should we be valuing some wider scope because maybe that's economically that's what wrestling's about and maybe not even beyond beyond economically because you know obviously promos still resonate with people emotionally and 
creatively. Well, but now we're getting into the aesthetics of how do you review? You know, we're we're discussing right. not the wins and losses. We're we're discussing the what makes it a satisfying experience, and I think that goes to the idea of what makes wrestling in itself interesting to us, which is it's the the combination of all the different media that comes through of seeing the competition. So it's the seeing it live event. It's the danger event. It's the only have one time to do it, that version of it. It's the talking, it's the action, you know, it's the hero's journey. (laughs) You like that? Um, so let's get back to Wrestle Kingdom. So I've, I've said my Mia Culpa. I, I've given New Japan. It's uh, slightly less than $10 for me to uh, uh, stay a subscriber here because um, I, I did feel bad that people thought that I was being a pirate for watching that match, that, that footage on YouTube. And um, Dave, Dave thinks that there's a lot of credit that deserves to go to Jericho to kind of pushing them above the 30000 up to the 35000 You wrote an article at Fightful. I did. Tell me what your thoughts are on how we should be viewing this Wrestle wrestle uh, Kingdom economic attribution, as I would call it, the WKEA. I kind of just discussed it a little bit, but I I, I feel that Okada and Naito deserve, no pun intended, the lion's share of the credit for the attendance and for the the increase in attendance versus the previous year. I think Jericho and Omega deserve some of that credit. I think especially you can pinpoint the 2,000 or 2,400 people that reportedly went to the Tokyo Dome from Europe or United States. Um, I think Jericho and Omega deserve a significant portion of the, of the credit for drawing in those people. I think a lot of those people would have gone regardless, though. Um, maybe not 2,000, but some. More than last year. Um, yeah, and I would, I mean, one, one of the reasons that I've always been fascinated with WWE is that they have that OTT network. They get real-time information about how many people are watching and what they sign up and what they want to get. So you do have to imagine in some element, New Japan does feel like they get some idea about ticket sales and about OTT subscriptions coming from which matches they're announcing, right? So some of this is probably coming a little bit from the the, the New Japan office, pushing the, the narrative that says when this Jericho thing was announced, we saw ticket sales go up. We saw OTT services start to climb up. Yeah, they, they would know. You'd want to look at, like, when was when was that match announced and how did ticket sales react? Because probably by the time that match was announced, Okada and Naito was already clear, right, I think? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I know Naito was defending the, the briefcase and whatnot, even after the G1, as they always do. Um, but as far as NGPW World subscribers, we don't know the split. Well, can't, yeah. Can't we use Google Trends? Can't Google Trends tell us who is a draw? Uh, I don't know if they can tell us that, but it gives us some clue. I think it's a piece of evidence. So did you do this? Have you actually checked to see what Google Trends I tells? have. So I looked at Google Trends. I looked at, I've, I've converted to saying web searches because that sounds more like what it really is rather than saying things like Google Trends <laughs> or, or interest. These are web searches. I think this is a more appropriate phrase to describe them. So I looked at, uh, let's look at the five main players, and I don't think this is very disputable. The five big players on this show were Okada, Naito, Tanahashi, Omega, Jericho. Not necessarily in that order. And Brandy Rhodes. No, not Brandy Rhodes. Just those five were the biggest stars on this show. Um, And I looked at a worldwide breakdown, a Japanese breakdown, 
and the U.S. breakdown. I also looked at U.K., but it was very similar to the U.S. So worldwide, well, let's start with Japan. In Japan, uh, over the 30 days, over 30 days from December 8th to January 6th, so that's two days after Wrestle Kingdom, over those 30 days, uh, Tanahashi actually had the most web searches, and it looked like he had. A, there was a big spike on Christmas Eve, and I, I put the question out on Twitter, like, why, can anybody think of a reason why Tanahashi uh, had a big spike in searches on Christmas Eve? Did he have, like, some sort of mainstream media appearance in Japan or something like that? I, I didn't get any clear answer, but it, it looks like, I don't know, it, it looks like maybe it does coincide with a, a change to his hairstyle. <laughs> could be coincidental who knows um no 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 i'm gonna say tanahashi's hair if we were ranking the biggest draws in in the world it goes john cena tanahashi's hair jinder mahal roman reigns there you go so so you've heard it here from wrestlenomics we are the experts and in fact there probably shouldn't even be a best best box office draw vote open to the public it just should just be decided by us and we were deciding forbes forbes that has all the inside information you could put forbes in there i guess Maybe maybe the makeup lady in yeah. in WWE's friend. So we're decreeing that Tanahashi's hair is at least the number two draw in professional wrestling and mixed martial arts. Or who are you to doubt Tanahashi's hair? It is a die job of the greatest magnitude. I also put the question out there asking, what do you think Tanahashi's budget is for styling and hair products? And I didn't get any definitive answers on that either. I'll have to. Do you, do you think it could be a situation where there's somebody else in Japan who has the last name Tanahashi who's a big star? And there's confusion on the Google search stuff. That is possible. I don't know. Now, some people true, were but... questioning. Somebody was asking uh, me through you or you through me, however you want to put it, um, about, well, shouldn't all these searches be in Jap- Japanese? Shouldn't we be looking up the Japanese versions of these people's names? And uh, the answer to that is they are. Yeah. So the answer here is that when we say that they're looking up the keywords – the keyword contains all of the versions of that person's name in the local languages being combined together, correct? And to be fair, like I don't know how Google determines what queries are what relevant to, to a given bucket, let's say. A bucket But we think it's a node and and they kind of attach subqueries to this node and then when you're choosing the keyword you're getting all of the stuff that's in this kind of bucket, right? Right. So what what I do when I when I do this research is I just go to, to trends.google.com and I go into the explore thing and I type in, for example, in this case, people's names. So I type in Hiroshi Tanahashi, I type in Tetsuya Naito and so on. And that gives And when you do that, does it come up as Japanese professional wrestler? Does it recognize who you're talking about? It does. I t- I start to type in Hiroshi Tana and it says, Oh, you're talking about Hiroshi Tanahashi, the, the Japanese professional wrestler, and I click and, and so yeah. it goes in there. I think that's the key is is to 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 recognize that it's not just looking for the the, the English words Hiroshi Tanahashi, Correct. but it's looking at an idea that Google has now coalesced around to say this is a pro wrestler. This is about pro wrestling events because that that's really key. Because if I if I type yes. the name Steve Austin, I could be talking about the million absolutely you know the six million dollar man. Yes. I could be talking about Steve Austin the wrestler. I could just be talking about a guy named Steve who lives in Austin, Texas. Right. So that so whenever I'm doing this Google Trends stuff, that's almost always what I'm doing is I'm using this is, isn't their term, but it's my term, but a bucket. I'm using Google's recognition of who I'm talking about, and they're they have some system that uh, out you know aggregates all of these relevant queries and says, all right, these are the relevant queries. For example, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and those include in the case of Tanahashi a number of Japanese queries in, in Japanese in the Japanese language, in the Japanese written language. 
what um so we didn't get, get you... through this so like so the google google web searches in japan uh among those five tanahashi naito okada omega uh first place for the for the 30 days uh surrounding uh i, I want to say 30 days surrounding wrestle kingdom is not quite it's from december 8th to january 6th uh hiroshi tanahashi was was number one naito was number two okada is number three Omega, sorry, Jericho was number four, and Omega was number five. With this is in Japan. This is right? just in Japan. In, uh, in the United States, Jericho was number one, Omega number three, uh, Okada and Naito tied for. Sorry, Jericho number one, Omega number two, Okada and Naito tied for number three, and Tanahashi at number four, and that's like a fifty percent Jericho, thirty three percent Omega, eight percent Naito and Okada. Three percent Tanahashi. And so your point here being that if, if New Japan Pro Wrestling is still do, primarily a Japanese promotion, that the attendance is going to be majority Japan. The New Japan World subscriptions are going to be still majority Japan, though not as as heavy. You know, For we're now. talking one is going to be ninety something yeah. percent. I think we could yeah, end up in probably a day sixty percent or seventy percent. Yeah, I think we could end up in a day where the majority, not 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 too far away, maybe where the majority NGBW World subscribers are not from Japan. But sure. we'll get to that in a minute, probably. So, but you're saying there, hands down, it's the Japanese stars that are at the top, and then yes, then this. Yes. But uh, on a U.S. basis, Jericho's so big yeah. that Jericho kind of. I, I, I think the them. big takeaway to take from this is like Jericho and Omega are not are not getting searched for as much as Naito and Okada or even Tanahashi in Japan. Which which always goes back to that weird thing of saying, what does it mean to be searched for? And does that right. mean that you're important? Because you, you do wonder that piece of like, why would I search for certain things if I could know where to get the news? But I do know that so many people are searching for UFC things when yeah. UFC events happen. So yeah, I think psychologically search. there's an element of like, maybe people get searched for more because... <laughs> People are interested and, and they don't know. They're, they're searching because they're trying to find out information that they don't know, not just a reflection of consciousness, I think. I, th- I think Google searches are a hint about the consciousness of, of the masses, like how often are people thinking about Tanahashi or Naito or Okada or Chris Jericho? I think, I think Google or searches give Tanahashi's us – Tanahashi's hair. Exactly. We could you – know, we could we could we could do a search on on just that string alone. Tanahashi's hair. I do wonder does is there a Twitter account set up just for Tanahashi's hair? Probably not. But you got an idea there. Start one. Start one before someone hears this and starts it on their own. Tanahashi's hair. Is that a handle at Tanahashi's hair? Uh, you, you do run into a lot of people talking about best wrestler hair very quickly. <laughs> And that, then that handle's a lot available. Of... Sign up for it now. Jeez, nice. Well, um, so so your view is that we're understating the value of of Okado and Naito. Mm. Now, would would I don't the... know if we are, but uh, I guess oh. I guess I think the observer is slightly. I okay. mean, it's not like a radical disagreement, but yeah, I would I would say yeah, Okada and Naito deserve the most credit among the people who are on this show and Omega and Jericho deserve credit as well, but not to the extent that the main event did for attendance. 
Yeah. I mean, have we have we completed the WrestleNomics time travel machine where we can go back in time and convince Vic, Vince McMahon to shoot down Chris's idea so Chris doesn't do this so that we can see how the event draws without him? Yeah, I'm still working on that. Okay. Well, if you'd like to donate, uh, patreon.com slash WrestleNomics goes towards the time machine. We need the flux. Uh, we need a we've got a – for the flux capacitor still. Yeah, yeah, we've got we've got a guy named um, Professor Kushida who's been working on the um, all the the technology, and I think he's yeah. he's almost got it down. Yeah. So and then and so I looked at the Google Trends over those thirty days, and I looked at Google Trends as well over seven days, and it's I think the hierarchy is is, is very similar. Yeah. So, New Japan Wrestling Observer just said that on the afternoon of my birthday. They had nine ninety nine thousand seven hundred eighty four subs. Yeah, a very exact number, uh, making one believe that uh, Dave is getting this number possibly from a source in New Japan's office, rather than say Twitter. Though, then again, if you look at the numbers that Paul Fontaine and Dave like to quote about viewership, sometimes it goes to a decimal of a viewer or to a, a number of a viewer, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. I will have to have a strong conversation with Dave in New Orleans all about what degrees of significance mean and digits of significance at some point. Well, I think clearly but, um, 99,784 is a number that yeah, was gotten yeah, from a I'm source. Just, yeah, I'm just joking because sometimes they'll say, oh, this TV show last year averaged this many viewers, and then they'll have it to a single person. You know, ah. 2,961,384 viewers. Yeah. If you, and, if you do an average of round numbers, yeah. yeah, I see. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.